Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Ho. H to the OV. I used to move snowflakes by the OZ. I guess even back then you can call me CEO of the ROC. Ho. Fresh out the frying pan into the fire. I be the music biz number one supplier. Flyer than a piece of paper bearing my name. Got the hottest chick in the game wearing my chain. That's right, Ho. Not DOC, but similar to them letters. No one could do it better. I check cheddar like a food inspector. My homie Strick told me, dude, finish your breakfast. So that's what I'm going to do. What's good, everybody? Happy New Year and welcome to another episode of the Yamatelica TIS podcast with your host, yours surely, Jai Shields, here on this Tuesday, the second day of the year 2024 and the second day of the month of January. Hope you guys had a nice safe and happy new year's uh, holiday nice to be uh, back in the saddle here on a tuesday as we uh, as we reconvene after the holiday season is coming gone thank god for most of us uh but the holiday season's coming gone we reconvene and uh, we will discuss everything and anything regarding the world of uh, football, specifically that of the college football and NFL variety. And you begin the home stretch where you only got one college football game left. That's the national championship game on uh, Monday, on uh, next Monday, January 8th. You have week uh, 18, the, the day and night before, and of course the two games on Saturday, the weekend of the 6th and the 7th coming up this weekend. Then you have the NFL playoffs, Janu- the weekends of January 13th, 14th, 20th, and 21st, the conference championship games the 28th, and then uh, Super Bowl Sunday lying in the weeds uh, lying in the weeds on, uh, February 11th, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. February, uh, yep. February the 11th. So you know where you stand, obviously in terms of, uh, your scheduling and with the last few weeks of football we have left. And then of course, obviously college basketball and the NBA begins to mold and take center stage as the month of January moves along hockey. If you're a hockey fan, same deal with them. And you're still about a month and change away from uh, pitchers and catchers reporting for uh, the begin to mark the beginning of the new baseball season. It'll be right here before you know it, but where we will begin is with uh, the college football platform with some college football. And man, let me tell you, those were some uh, entertaining and riveting football games that we were fortunate enough to watch uh, yesterday afternoon into the or yesterday evening into the uh, into the wee hours of Tuesday morning and I obviously will do the Rose Bowl uh, first and let me say let me say let me say what a football game what a football game there's nothing if you appreciate and you love football just to sport it just the sport itself it doesn't matter if you may love college more than you love the nfl or you love the nfl a little bit more than you love college if you're a football fan if you can appreciate the greatness of the sport of gridiron football there i don't see how you couldn't have loved that game at the rose bowl on uh, out west uh, t- uh, Monday afternoon. It is one of the most premier, picturesque, uh, 
not just bowl games that there is in college football is one of the more it's one of the most uh, physically appealing picturesque stadiums in all of in all of in all of sports and certainly in all of the sport of football both college and uh, college and the NFL the the Rose Bowl that stadium is absolutely I mean it is it's it's chef's kiss. It's gorgeous how beautiful that stadium is over a hundred years old and it still holds up and, and looks, uh, and, 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 and looks divine in 20 in the in 21st century, uh, you know, in this modern age where every football stadium essentially has to be a, uh, you know, a glorified, uh, airline hangar or glorified, you know, airport or shopping mall, but it's great, you know, you still have those old-fashioned, you know, bold stadiums where it's just, where it's the field, you know, bleachers, no, you know, big contraptions and all the stuff within the stadium that can distract you, the, the ginormous scoreboards, the you know, a roof or in SoFi Stadium's case, a canopy, none, none of that garbage. It's just, it's just that all-natural grass field. The bowl, the entire, you know, seating bowl, all bleachers, all metal seats, the way it was back in the day, and that's it. And the picturesque, uh, you know, scenery and background of the more rules, of the more rural uh, side of the greater L.A. area, uh, L.A. County, L.A. area in Southern California. I mean, it is one of the more, it, it, you know what it reminds, you know what I got from that, and I, for, for sure get to the game in a minute but going off of like the the getting the giving you the appetizer before i give you the main entree for the rose bowl is to college football what lambo field is to the national football league those are the vibes i got from from just taking a step back and just watching the game be, the amount of history that's in that building, the amount of legendary games, legendary performances, legendary players that have played on that field, you know, whether it be, you know, regular Rose Bowls on, you know, on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, when the Rose Bowl like it is this year are part of the college football playoff semifinal format, you know, back in the BCS days where, where the uh, national championship game was held at the Rose Bowl. I mean, it is just, it is, it, it is, it, that stadium screams, screams football. And that stadium screams West Coast football. When you tell me football on the left coast, specifically in the state of California, my brain automatically goes to the Rose Bowl. You say football in the Midwest, football in the North, it goes Lambeau. Football in the West, it goes to the Rose Bowl. But it, it's a beautiful stadium, and I even tweeted, you know, and I will harp on this because it because it's a point, a valid point that needs to be said. Not only does the national championship game need to return, the college football national championship game need to return to the Rose Bowl like it was back in the BCS era days, but the Super Bowl has to return to the Rose Bowl too. They had, and I can look it up, how many Super Bowls. Uh, has been held in that stadium, uh, but the but the Super Bowl absolutely. I Mike and EOC told me you know getting in and out of there, you know the parking, 
and everything's a pain in the ass. But I say, look, if it's good enough to host the college football playoff semifinal game between two of the more premier uh, uh, household name uh, schools in college football in the last, what, 60, 60 plus years or so, uh, you know, host the Rose Bowl game, whether it's a college football playoff game or not. If it's good enough for UCLA to play their home games there, and if and I guarantee you they probably hosted, you know, a, a, a concert or two, maybe three of the Beyonce and probably the Taylor Swift tour over the summer. If it's good enough to host those big time events, what do you think? You know, tens of people are showing up to the Rose Bowl, you know, to watch uh, Beyonce or some A-list uh, singer perform during, a, you know, during a uh, Saturday in, in late July, not a chance. If it's good enough to host all of those, if it's good enough to host those events, including UCLA football, you know, from September through November, it's good enough to it's good enough to host uh, the Super Bowl again. Good enough, good. It's good enough to host the Super Bowl again. It is. Let's. I mean, let's see. It is a recognized as a national historic landmark and a California historic civil engineering landmark. It hold. It holds 92,542 92, people. Sixteenth largest stadium in the world. Eleventh largest stadium in the U.S. You mean to tell me that Goodell can't can't put a can't uh hold a Super Bowl in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl? It's on a it's on a US National Register of Historic Places and it's since and it's been there since nineteen eighty seven. You mean to tell me that they that they can't that they can't they've hosted one, two, three, four uh CFP semifinal games there. They've hosted a boatload of BCS national championship games in that building. I mean, you, you mean to, it's, it's, Army Navy was played there 40 years ago. You mean to tell me that they can't put the Super Bowl in Pasadena again? You mean, you mean to tell me that? It's got to go, the game's got to return. It's got to return. I don't, I don't care about stupid SoFi. I'm not interested. Oh, uh, SoFi, it's all night. Yeah, but I see SoFi. I, it's a nice stadium, but it reminds me of everything about Southern California that uh, that I don't like. You know, the it, it, where it looks too, where it looks so nice, it looks dirty. Like it, it, it looks a little bit too polished, a little bit too, you know fake and artificial you know they play on the stupid field turf that asinine canopy you know the tickets cost a freaking fortune celebrities flock to the play i can't i hate it and they're gonna have two super bowls there in five years with super bowl 61 uh at sofi and i believe the year will be what 2027 2028 one of those two the super bowl's gotta be the la is the only city in America that has not one but two historic classic old school football stadiums and yet we got to run to SoFi for every football event underneath the sun because reasons the LA Memorial Coliseum played host to the first two Super Bowls played a host to, to a bevy of other Super Bowls as one of the oldest most historic stadiums and not just in the history of football college and the NFL but in the history of American sports Olympiads 
uh, USC has played there, their football team there for, for a bevy of year. I don't understand. And then the Rose Bowl, same thing. And I think the Rose Bowl is a little bit of a more nicer stadium because of how the stadium is built. At least as it looks on TV, you feel closer to the game than you do in the Coliseum, which is basically, you know, in a, which is basically, you know, it's it was built big, big enough to hold an Olympic regulated, you know, uh, you know, racetrack, track and field racetrack, and then was able to fit a football and a soccer-sized field in the middle of it. so something. You know, so it's not you know the sight lines in certain you know in certain areas of the field are 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 worse than others. I still like the stadium, but the Rose Bowl I think is where it's at. The name, the you know the the the, the Rose. It's just something about it. it the scenery outside that stadium is a, is a tad bit you know nicer than it is than it, it is in uh, at the LA Coliseum. But this got they've held five Super Bowls there at the at the uh, Rose Bowl. Super Bowl uh, 11, 14, 12, No, uh, no, fourteen, seventeen. 21 and the most recent one January in 93 the uh, set, the uh, first Bills Cowboys uh, massacre Super Bowl 27 You mean it's you mean to tell me that if they put a Super Bowl in in at the Rose Bowl that A the place wouldn't sell out and B that wouldn't be a majestic sight Three o'clock, three thirty on a Sunday afternoon bright sunshine uh, clear sunny skies Seeing the players play on that historic field, they love playing on natural. They they love playing on the natural grass. You mean to tell me they can't put the Super Bowl at the Rose Bowl again? They'd get they'd pack a hundred and five people into the building easy. What? Because it doesn't have the nice little cute modern amenity. I mean, come on, guys. Don't 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 uh don't lose sight of uh, of of uh, of of uh you know the most important deal here. But anyway, that's 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 my that's my that's my uh, that's my tangent. I understand, you know, for twenty years they couldn't put the ga- they couldn't put the game there because L.A. had no football team. They have two. Put do us right and put the game back at the back in the Rose Bowl. Sometime in my lifetime, I want to see the Super Bowl return to the Rose Bowl. It's a great stadium. It's a historic stadium. It's a monumental stadium. That stadium, again, is is the sport of football. College and the NFL on the West Coast put the game put the game there again. So SoFi will still be there and it'll be there for a hundred years. They just had they just had a Super Bowl. Uh, they just had a Super Bowl in SoFi. Going to put it there again. And listen, if the metal seats and the old school, you know, uh, uh, charm and mystique, uh, you know, turn turns the turns the nose away from the, uh, you know, from the stooge from the uh, from the celebrity stooges that love to flock to the game and they haven't watched the football game all year, you know what? Tough holds more people than SoFi does, and the NFL's going to charge you an arm and a leg for tickets for the game anyway, so what difference does it make? You might as well put the game in the best, uh, you know, and, and, and capitalize when you put it, especially out there on the West Coast, put it in the best scenery as you possibly can. If it's good enough, you know, for the for all those events that they've ha- that they've held in this in this century, it's good enough to host the Super Bowl again. 
But anyway, that's my Rose Bowl. Uh, that's my bring the Super Bowl back to the Rose Bowl uh, uh, rant for the day. But I, I mean, I was just blown away how how just gorgeous. Why it is, you know, at least watching on television. God knows what it's like in, there in person watching a football game played in that stadium. The Super Bowl's got to go back there. Got to go back. Got to go back there. But anyway, to the actual Rose Bowl game itself. Uh, what a what a ball game, and how? But what a job from Michigan. Michigan, who. I mean, who did a sensational job, especially defensively early on, punching Alabama in the face. I mean, the, Alabama's offensive line was taking the task throughout the entire first half and then was able to kind of bring it full circle and dominate the Alabama uh, the Alabama uh, front to close out the game in the overtime but Michigan was very despite the fact that their that their defensive line made Jalen Milrow's life a living hell all game long they uh, they sacked them five they sacked them five times excuse me they sacked them six times in total five out of the six came in the first half he had them running for his life all afternoon long Alabama was three of thirteen on third downs for the after for the afternoon racked up only two hundred and eighty eight total yards they uh, they could not they were not efficient at all whatsoever in terms of getting inside the red zone they were in the red zone only twice went one for two. Um, but, and despite all of that, Michigan's self-inflicted mistakes on the, on, the, on their side of the football kept Alabama in this game. You can, you can go back and rehash the missed field goal they had after Jalen, after Jalen Miro put the ball on the ground, the bad snap on the, on the P on the bad snap on a PAT, which negate, which, uh, took an extra point off the board. At uh, at thirteen at uh, thirteen ten, uh, Michigan in the second quarter. You can go and you can go back and rehash the bots flea flicker uh, on on the poor exchange between JJ McCarthy and his running back that that uh, that took away and squashed an opportunity for a big play when they had the uh, receipt when they had the uh, receiver number eight wide open down the field as Herb Sheet did a phenomenal job pointing out uh, yesterday, and then the one that I really really couldn't understand was it is then let me go back and and bring up the play uh bring up the play so i can get the specifics the one that really 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 would have been the coup de gras was at the end of regulation so let me get this straight it's fourth and four and i'll break down alabama's decision making in a minute but let me get this straight it's fourth and four the game's tied at 20 apiece there's 54 seconds left when the ball is snapped. And Burnup, who, the, I tell you, if it had not been for the Alabama, for Jalen Miro having a horrendous day throwing the football in the Alabama offensive line, the difference in this game would have been Alabama special teams versus Michigan special teams because Alabama's special teams was clicking on all cylinders. Their punter, Burnup, delivered an absolute beauty of a punt, 51 yards to pin Michigan back all the way into, into uh, inside their own 10-yard uh, line, and then – and then their and then their return guy uh, thought he muffs the punt. Why in the world 
when you when you're fielding a punt inside your own 10-yard line in a in a tie game 2020 in this in a in a Rose Bowl college football semifinal uh setting what it, and it doesn't even matter if it was the Rose Bowl. He could have did this in a regular season game against Purdue. It's still be an asinine decision. It's a it's a punt basically just to play to the overtime to avoid uh, any culpability of Alabama losing the game. And here it is. He nearly gifts him, gifts him a win right on the doorstep, literally by deciding to field a punt in at his own six at his own six yard line in a tie game, twenty twenty. I mean, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? Thaw muffs the punt. Fortunately enough, he's able to fall on it. But even with him falling on it and avoiding turning the football right back over to Alabama, what does it leave Michigan? Pinned up inside their pinned up inside their own seven yard line to where they can't, you know, run the foot run, you know, run the football or, you know, to to kill clock or had JJ McCarthy back there roll around and throw the ball or or you know, run the ball via QB keeper because they got to be afraid of fumbling the football. Indians having it recovered for a touchdown. Him getting sacked and, and or one of the running backs getting tackled in the end zone for safety. And the third thing, worry about if they decide to throw the ball, having a holding penalty called in the end zone to result in the safety. That was just awful, awful, awful. The mistakes with Michigan, especially on special teams, was 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 horrendous, and and that is what kept Alabama in the game, folks. Because if you you watch the ebb and flow of that game, Michigan's defensive front, the the game was the, the momentum and the attitude and flow of the game was determined in the trenches. Because the because the Michigan defensive front did not take any prisoners. They had Milrow running for his life essentially right from the opening get go. Did a did a solid did a solid job at uh, at neutralizing the run early. And you sit there watching. I'm like, damn. I mean, Michigan. They are just punching Alabama in the face and they look like they do not have an answer for him offensively. And then Michigan gets the and then Michigan gets the ball back in return and you know they have they have problems moving the ball up and down the field themselves on top of the fact that their special teams was out the lunch. So I mean you take so you have touchdown, punt, punt, back to back, touchdown Michigan, end of the half, one Two, three consecutive drives ending in a punt, and then throw in the missed, uh, the missed forty-nine yard field goal, which would have ex- which would have, uh, which would have, uh, what was it? It was uh, seventeen thirteen Alabama would have made it seventeen sixteen Alabama had uh, Turner been able to make a make a forty-nine yard field goal with ten thirty-nine to go in the fourth quarter. So you had. Up. So you had punt, touchdown, punt, punt, touchdown, and then they came out in the second half and had one, two, three, four consecutive drives that resulted in no points. Meanwhile, Alabama's offensive line turnstiles. The center, awful night for him. 
Milrow, Mil, they, they can't trust uh, Milrow to throw the ball uh, to win the game, and I get to that specific part in the overtime in a minute. But uh, but in the same, t- but at the same token, give Alabama credit because in the second half. They said, look, we got to make some adjustments here. We're fortunate to be in this game because our defense has bailed us out for the, you know, for the 75% of the opening half. We got to adjust our offensive game plan, run the ball more with, with uh, put the ball in Milrow's hands and, McCle- and uh, McClellan's hands, the running back, to run the football more, drain the clock. Wear down the Michigan. Wear down the Michigan uh, defense, especially uh, their their, uh, their their defensive front, and play the long game in terms of may, we uh, the best way we can uh, 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 beat Michigan. Given the sets of circumstances that we're in, is if we wear their defense down and grind them down to a nub, and eventually the dam is going to break, and we're going to win this, and we're going to win this game, you know, uh, you know, twenty to seventeen, something like that. Supplemented a horrendous passing attack in the first half. Highest pass protects for Alabama, like I said, surrendered five first half sacks, which is just completely and utterly just inexcusable. Um, now, in terms of what Michigan did, I had no problems whatsoever, none. When they scored the uh, when they scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter to tie the game at twenty apiece, I had no problems, none, 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 none whatsoever to kick the extra point. And then I said to myself, huh, it looks like Jim Harbaugh must have watched the uh, the Lions-Cowboys game with uh, Dan Campbell on Saturday night, which I'll get to that. Uh, McCarthy and and uh, Dan Campbell didn't exactly put on a uh, head coaching clinic in Dallas on Saturday night. i get to that a little bit later on. But I had no problems whatsoever, and I wholeheartedly agreed with Harbaugh's decision to kick the extra point. You know, you play for the – to at least tie the game be, to at minimum extend it. When your offense has done nothing for for the majority of the second half, you score a touchdown for the first time in eons. You take your point, you take your tie, and you leave. And you trust the defense, which did a solid job of of uh, holding Alabama and check out the ebb and flow of the game. But your defense on the field until make a play. Give me, get us the ball back so we can win this. Get us the ball back, so we can win this game, or at bare minimum, hope that they, that they, uh, that they hold serve uh, in the final what minute thirty four. Alabama had to respond to win the game. You either hope that they make a play to give you the ball back so you can win it in regulation, or you hope that your defense holds serve for the remaining ninety four seconds and you live to play the overtime. But not smart decision by Harbaugh. I absolutely agreed with him kicking the extra point there to tie the game at 20. And I agree with Alabama's decision uh, when their drive uh, stalled five plays, 18 yards, took off 50 seconds. Had no issues uh, with uh, Saban's decision to punt on fourth, on, uh, on fourth and four when they had the ball thrown 43-yard line. None. you Because in that situation, if you decide to go for it, and you don't get, especially when you're again your offensive line was been a sieve all afternoon. Your passing offense throughout that throughout the day is nothing to speak of, and we saw it in terms of their play calling late in the overtime, which I we'll get to in a second. Yeah, no problems with deciding to put on fourth and four. You play for the you play for the overtime. And if that and if Michigan, whose special teams has was been and has been and was awful all game long. 
if they somehow, you know, in a, in a one in, you know, uh, 20 chance they return the kick back, you know, and set themselves up in field position, you know what? You take your chances. But you do not, in your own territory, uh, go for it on fourth and four, knowing that if you don't get it, you know, a couple of uh, uh, a first down and or a huge chunk play and the game is over. You you just – in that setting, in that situation, you don't take that risk. So I had no problems with uh, the, with um, Saban's decision to punt on fourth and fourth, the game tied at 20. Um, and here's the uh, thing about Alabama that I really – well, let me give J.J. McCarthy his flowers first. Um, he, the tremendous, tremendous game time drive he had eight plays. He gets, they get the ball at Alabama's or excuse me, at their own 25 yard line with 441 to go to in regulation. And he's able to march down the field, eight plays, 75 yards. He has a, uh, he, a tremendous pass play for 27 that he finds, uh, he finds Corm to set themselves up and move them up to, uh, and move them up to the uh, 33 yard line had not had not been for an illegal block and a back penalty which neg- which negated a uh, which negated a 27 yard gainer he runs for si- for 16 yards at uh, at mi- at uh, at midfield knocked out of bounds I was for sure thought they were going to throw an unnecessary roughness penalty because he's well outside of the uh, of the field of play well outside the white and he gets shoved and thrown down to the ground out of bounds I was shocked that the refs did not throw a flag in that situation uh in that situation there it just behooved me that they didn't throw it but he got a 16 game which could have been easily about 31 had then but they had the refs uh paid attention and threw the flag but they healthy game nevertheless then they have a first and 10 Alabama's 34 yard line finds Wilson who climbed the ladder made a tremendous catch to move the ball uh to move the ball to Alabama's uh five yard to move the ball to Alabama's uh to move the ball to Alabama's five yard line and set up a first and goal. And then they take it for, and then they take it from there. Uh, second and goal, McCarthy finds uh, Wilson in the end zone. Second and goal for the game tying touchdown. Tremendous, tremendous drive led by JJ McCarthy, who, you know, is not going to, whether he's going to be a great pro. I have, you know, I, I, my, from the eye test that I get when I've watched him play this season, I'd say no. You know, he'd be a guy that'd be perfect for like a, he'd be a, your quote unquote typical, prototypical system quarterback, so to speak. And if you look at his stats, you know, he doesn't blow you away 2017 and 2017, 21, eh. But he had three touchdown passes and was sensational during that uh, game-tying drive in the fourth quarter. Now, in terms of Alabama in the overtime, so I do not understand the decision by their offensive coordinator, Reese, and then Saban, who, of course, who runs the ship, who's the head coach, I don't understand for the life of me. It's overtime. Michigan's up twenty-seven, up twenty-seven to uh, up twenty-seven to twenty. Your defense got uh, ran out the got ran out of the uh, got ran off the field on Michigan's opening possession in the overtime. It's twenty-seven twenty Michigan. Why in the world Michigan calls a timeout? 
you call a timeout. There are two consecutive timeouts before the fourth and goal. Why in the world when Michigan and you see the look that I, that Michigan was giving Alabama there in that fourth and goal, stacking the box, their offensive line has been made to be Michigan's you-know-what for 60-plus minutes. And they decided it's a brilliant idea to have Miro in the shotgun run a QB draw on fourth and goal with their season on the line from the three-yard line when they stopped McClellan, their running back, with draw plays up the middle on first and second down. I mean, I just... That, when I saw it, I'm like, what What are we doing here? Is, is, is Brian Johnson calling the place? I mean, what are we doing here, Alabama? They stopped your running back on first and second down on inside runs. And you're going to call it again with Milrow thinking it's going to catch him off guard. The direct snap to him. And let's have him run a QB power from the three-yard line with our C's on the line. And he runs into a wall of bodies. And Alabama loses the game. I mean, that that is horrific, horrific coaching and play calling. Michigan calls a timeout, you call a timeout, and that's the decision, and that's the play call. You decide to punch up with your seeds on the line. I mean, come on. And give the Michigan defense credit because they read it to a T and they and they executed the play phenomenally. But that is completely, completely unacceptable from Alabama, considering and I again I understand that he, you know, is not a big time quarterback, then that he's not a a a a, a, a you know, he's not Michael Pennitz in terms of his uh, tremendous throwing ability behind the pocket, you know, and, 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 and uh, you know, and, and making plays with his arm. I understand all that. But granted, he did make, he did have that phenomenal throw on fourth and goal and forever when you were further back away from your end zone on fourth and goal with your season on the line uh, back on Thanksgiving weekend about five five, six weeks prior, thereabouts, uh, in the Iron Bowl at uh, at uh, Jordan-Hare, and you had enough wherewithal, and I understand now you had no choice, but you put the ball in his hands with your season on the line to even to help get you in this position to play in a college football playoff game at the Rose Bowl. You put the ball in Milrow's hands, and he was able to find Isaiah Bond, mano a mano, man coverage in the top left-hand corner of the end zone to catch the game-winning touchdown, which helped propel you to playing in this game. And I said during Alabama's drive in the overtime when they decided to when they decided to uh, run the ball on second and nine, first and goal on second and nine, first and goal and second and goal. They decided to run the ball three straight times. I said they don't. Tr- I said they don't trust Milrow. Even with the two times they decided to throw the ball with uh, with 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 screen plays on on the first play of their overtime drive, and on third thirteen they decided to run a little bubble screen where the ball you know gets back to the line of scrimmage, and that's it. I said, and I even tweeted. I said Michigan's defense is daring, daring Jalen Milrow to to win this game and to take this game from him via his arm. Because they are key, they are they are giving up anything over the top and are stacking the box and are stacking their DBs, you know, to play close to the line of scrimmage. They they are daring him to to daring him to win this game, throwing the football into the end zone. 
and they dared and dared and dared again, and Alabama not one time called their bluff. Not one time. Two screens and a bunch of <clears throat> run plays up the middle. And then fourth and goal at your own three-yard line, your QB draw with Milrow from the shotgun, no less, with your season on the line. I mean, that that's, that's, that's horrific, horrific losing football. That's all there is to it. And Alabama goes home 12-2. and two. And give Michigan credit. They uh, they fought hard. They they fought their asses off. They played their asses off defensively. Alabama, like I said, they were three of thirteen on third downs. Uh, racked up only two hundred eighty eight total yards of offense. Averaged four point four yards per play. Only surrendered one hundred and sixteen pass yards and one hundred and seventy two. Uh, rushing yards. There were one for two inside the red area. Alabama was. Did a sensational job defensively and only surrendered two touchdowns, none via the passing variety. They did a sensational job. J.J. McCarthy played well enough to win the game, had a sensational game-tying drive uh, late, in re- late in regulation. Um, but, I mean, if you're Alabama, that was an easy – I mean, at the very least, get the game to double overtime. And they – they let Michigan do, Michigan's dominance of Milrow and of that old line, and especially in the first half, they let it spook their their decision making there with their season on the line. They they had they dominated them and they uh, put belt the ass so much and so and and had and that D D line had such an impact. In that game, that Alabama's decision making was like, okay, we're doing, we're trying to win this game while also being as cautious as we possibly can because we don't trust our offensive line to block and we don't trust Milrow to to at least get us to extend to a second overtime via his arm with our season on the line. And they didn't. And Michigan knew it, called the appropriate defensive set. Uh, Alabama ran the QB power, went nowhere, game's over, Alabama season over, Michigan to play for national championship coming up Monday night uh, at NRG Stadium in Houston. The team that they'll play will be the 14-0 Washington State Huskies who just absolutely had us put on an offensive uh, clinic Michael Penix did. I mean, what a talent he's going to be in the NFL. Uh, 29 of 38 through for 430 yards, two touchdowns, uh, just an absolutely sensational night throwing the football. Um, Rome on Duze, uh, six receptions, a buck 25. Uh, and then Jalen Polk, his partner in crime, five targets, five receptions, a buck 22, caught a touchdown pass. Just an absolutely sensational night for him. I thought that uh, Washington got a little bit too cute in the fourth quarter when they, you know, decided to, you know, do to pull, you know, oh, screw it, you know, let's just shut the ball downfield and have some fun and, 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 and go for the gusto and go for the uh, – Go for the big play to really break this game wide open. And they left the door open for Texas to make a comeback there at the end. But their defense uh, held strong for the final uh, on that fourth on that uh, fourth and goal for the final play of the game. 
and was able to lock down the Sugar Bowl victory for the Washington uh, for the Washington Huskies. But uh, Ewers throughout the game, you know, I say he he fought his ass off, played his ass off the best possibly could. You know, had no help. You know, they they did not run the football exponentially uh, well collectively as a as a unit. Uh, you look at their numbers offensively uh, for Texas. They were four of eleven on third downs. Um, you know they really the game really started to get out of hand for them early in the third quarter, which is why I said you know Mall Washington started to get a little cute and and gave Texas the avenue to push the envelope down there to the final second there of fourth and goal in the red zone, but. Um, this is a game, you know, for uh, Texas offense and their secondary that just got absolutely lighted and torched by Michael Penix. Uh, and that basically, my friends, was the difference maker in the game. Defense for, for, uh, for Texas was just was absolutely abysmal and allowed Washington to, st- to, you know, get themselves into a little bit of a comfortable hole in the second half. Uh, to where, you know, had Washington been able to, you know, maybe finish a little bit stronger on defense, it wouldn't even have came down to the final play there at the end. I mean, you take a look at how uh, Washington fared offensively. They went, uh, after their turnover on downs in the second quarter, they went touch, they went touchdown, touchdown, field goal, field goal. I mean, that's 14 plus the six. That's 20 points on one, two, three, four straight possessions. Meanwhile, Texas touchdown to tie it at 21. Open, they get the ball back at their own 25-yard line with 10-25 to go in the third quarter. They fumble, get the ball back to uh, back to Washington to put them in perfect field positioning at Texas's own 25-yard line and kick a field goal that, to make it a 10-point game at 31-21. Then Texas gets the ball back uh, gets the ball back at uh at the you know from their own twenty. They go four plays, twenty one yards, and they got a punt. Uh, Washington gets the field gets the football right back, kick a field goal to go up thirty four twenty one, and that is you know, and then they get the ball started third quarter, and they fumble and give uh, Washington the football right back. Which was all, which in all intents and purposes was the diff, was the true difference maker in the game. But some good, damn good football games. And you get a Washington-Michigan National Championship game coming up in Houston next week. A game that I will be on top of, uh, obviously, and uh, have a set previewed for you come Friday's show. Um, and one other thing before we uh, shift gears to the NFL. Um, the NCAA cannot have these college football. When, when New Year's Day falls on a weekday, you know, a Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they cannot have these college football uh, playoff games, especially if one of them's in the Rose Bowl because they're hell bent on starting a game at five o'clock in the East. They, but they gotta tell the uh, the uh, the tournament of roses, whatever the committee is as in charge of Rose Bowl, they gotta tell them, look, we we cannot uh, have these these playoff games start. You know, after five o'clock, when America's got to get up, you know, at six, 
five, some probably maybe even four, four thirty, five, five ten, six fifteen, six twenty, six thirty in the morning to get up and go to work the next day. You cannot have the first game of your playoff games, especially when all these bowl games are insignificant anyway because, you know, the teams aren't playing for anything. The transfer portal is, you know, has has has, has uh, blown up in, in, within the sport of college football, and you got a crap ton of opt-outs. If you're not playing for a national championship, why would you go out there on the field? Not that I blame them or condone or condemn condemn them under any circumstances, but if you're not a player that's a part of the roster, the four teams now next season will be 12, but a part of the four teams uh, and speaking of this year uh, who is going to be competing for a national championship, why would you bother to fart around and play, you know, in the in the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, it's unless it's a, unless it's a college football playoff game, it's a complete waste of time. But so they gotta make sure that when the New Year's again, if New Year's Day falls on a Saturday, I'll stay up till five o'clock in the morning. If New Year's Day falls on a uh, you know falls on a Friday, I'll stay up you know till five o'clock in the morning. But when New Year's Day is on a is on a Monday, a t- is on a mon is on a Monday, a Tuesday. A Wednesday or Thursday, I cannot, and especially if one of them's the Rose Bowl, I can't have the two games start after five o'clock on a weekday. I understand it's a holiday, but when people's got to get up and go to work the next day, can't have these games start after five o'clock. On a if when New Year's Day is on a Monday, I want the Rose Bowl start. I want the Rose Bowl starting at about three three thirty in the East, and the second game starting at about six fifty seven o'clock. So by the time the game's over, it's about, you know, at the latest knocking on 11. And so I'm not, you know, watching the game on my phone, drifting off to sleep, trying to see if Sarkeesian's uh, Texas squad can somehow mount a comeback when they're putting the ball on the ground every five seconds, trying to uh, give Washington their first loss of the season. You, You can't have that. And I go into work this morning, you know, you know, dragging my ass off because I got, you know, five hours and 40 something minutes of sleep because I was up watching a sugar bowl well past midnight. I can't can't have that start the games earlier. But outside of that and me wanting my that quibble and then the pet peeve of the Super Bowl not being at the Rose Bowl. The games were sensational football games and entertaining football games to watch by the in excuse me in the very least of it all. From Michigan and Texas's football college football teams to their pro football teams that squared off on Saturday night over the weekend, there there's a lot to dissect with this game, and I will get into uh, the uh, Brad Allen, the official. I I get in his grits in a minute, and uh, dissect the C.D. Lance performance and what it means for both teams, and dissect the game as we normally do in a second. But uh, and I screamed and yelled about this live, well not live live, but uh, right after the game concluded on the little you know Twitter vocal tweets, whatever you want to call it. And I screamed and yelled about it at the time, and I'll make a big deal about it here now on this show. Um, and if, again, we can, we'll, we can discuss the horrendous calls, you know, to a blue in the face for hours upon hours upon hours on end. But my immediate takeaway, immediate takeaway when the game was over, was Dan Campbell and Mike McCarthy 
just totally, totally fouled up that game in terms of their decision-making, their clock management. I mean, they, 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 they did not, like I said, they did not put on a, a what will we call a head coaching clinic in front of the great Jimmy Johnson by, by any stretch of circumstances because they would, it was just awful. First off, let me let me get into Mike McCarthy first, okay? Mike McCarthy, and it, and it's the same same garbage from it's the same garbage from him that we saw in the Seahawk game back in late back in late November, which had it not been for Michael Parsons, would have cost him that game. Let me get this straight: the Cowboys are nursing a seventeen. The 13 lead. Jared Goff on first and 10 from Detroit's own 26-yard line throws the interception to the defensive back, Wilson, who made a tremendous play. They get the ball with 2.05 remaining in regulation. They are up four. 2.05. They run the ball. First and 10, smart decision, but Peyton Hendershot gets called for tripping. 15-yard penalty to back him up, first and 25. Takes us to the two-minute warning. First and 25, they get backed up, or excuse me, they, or, uh, yeah, they get backed up to Detroit's 44-yard line. Do they decide to run the ball with Pollard again? who picked up seven yards on their first and 10 carry to get wiped out by the penalty. Do they decide to run the ball with Tony Pollard again on first down with two minutes to go, nursing a four-point lead? They do not. Instead, McCarthy thinks it's a bright idea to put the ball in Dak Prescott's hands to throw the ball to, 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 to CeeDee Lamb. Now, they do nearly get back to the original line of scrimmage, but... Why throw the ball on first down when you don't have to? Second and 14, they decide to throw the ball again. Dak Prescott looking for brand looking for Brandon Cooks and a pass go and a pass near the uh, near sideline falls incomplete. Would have been an interception if the field length was stretched and uh, was stretched, you know, uh, was was stretched horizontally an extra 20 yards. It would have went as an interception. Instead, he's trying to find Brandon Cooks down the far, down the near sideline on the right side, goes out of bounds, falls incomplete. Stops the clock with a minute 55 to go after second down. You're not going forward on fourth, and you have a minute 55 remaining. And if I were to go back and look and see how many timeouts the Detroit Lions had to work with, I, it'd, be even, it'd be even worse than that sequence. But they decided to throw the ball on after Tony Pollard. Now, granted, it got wiped out because of the unfortunate tripping penalty, and that's just typical, you know, bull jive from these Mike McCarthy coach Dallas Cowboy teams that are undisciplined, not buttoned up, they don't know how to finish. They don't know how to close out football games. It's 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 typical slop from them. Everywhere you look, it's it's stupid penalty after stupid penalty after stupid penalty. And again, Peyton Hendershot called for a 15-yard tripping penalty that backs them up practically at that point in time out of field goal range. 
where at the bare minimum, you, you, if you stay in field goal range in that situation and you don't do anything stupid, you kick a field goal with that, break, with that great kicker, Brandon Aubrey, that they got from the USFL. You kick a field goal, you go up seven to where a touchdown, the extra point at bare minimum ties the game and you put Dan Campbell in a situation where he has to uh, go for a two-point conversion and make that decision to go for the gusto to go for the two-point conversion uh, to to win the football game rather than being only up four and a touchdown in and of itself puts De- puts Detroit up, puts Detroit out in front outright. So they had on so they had on second and fourteen they had a timeout to work with. They Detroit had a minute had a minute fifty-five to go. In regulation, down four with a timeout left. Third and 14, does Mike McCarthy, and now because they're they're back in field goal range, and with that incompletion on second down, it eliminates any possibility for the Dallas Cowboy offense to work the clock and milk the clock under, what, 40 seconds. Because you have an incomplete pass at second and 14, there's a minute 50 left. Even if they run the football on third and 14, Detroit's automatically going to call a timeout. The only way the game ends, the only way the game ends is if they th- is if they decide to run the ball on second and 14 and, the, and, and thus would end the football game. But even then, Detroit has one timeout to work with. And unless they decide to put the ball in the end zone once they pick up that hypothetical first down, Detroit's going to get the ball back because, because the Cowboys have such little field to work with with such a, with such a, 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 a plethora of time left on the clock. So really what killed them was throwing the football on second and 14. They got an 11-yard gain, second and 14. You get two downs, okay? Your goal is to run the clock, not necessarily put the ball into the end zone. Your goal in this situation, if you're the Dallas Cowboys, is to run the clock. I don't agree with throwing the football first to 25. You threw it. You picked up 11. You picked up 11 of those 15 yards. You get to. You get back into field goal range. You have the ball at Detroit's 33-yard line. You give the ball to Tony Pollard. I am not interested if you're Mike McCarthy that Tony Pollard got ran the ball 16 times for 49 yards and averaged 3.1 yard, yards per carry. I could care less. I am not interested in how effectively Tony Pollard was at running the football. The name of the game when Jared Goff threw an interception within his own territory, with inside his own 30-25 yard line, the goal and the name of the game when you're nursing a four-point lead in the fourth quarter is to get Detroit to use all of their timeouts to make sure even if you have to give them the ball back because you can't run out the remaining time left on the clock, you make sure that they have to march down the field 75 yards with not a single timeout to work with with less than a minute to go in regulation. That, if you're the Dallas Cowboys, is your job and your responsibility. And Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott collectively failed to do that. They failed to do it. They throw the football second and 14, it goes out of bounds. Third and 14, they decide to throw the ball to Jake Ferguson, who picks up eight yards 
takes a whole four seconds off the clock, and they have to kick a field goal to go up seven, leaving the leaving the Detroit Lions a minute and forty ish seconds left on a minute forty a minute forty left on the clock with essentially. Uh, as my thing is not, as my highlight reel is not working for whatever the reason, leaving debt, leaving Jared Goff and the crew with a minute 40 roughly left to go in regulation. And throughout that drive, if you go ahead and you punch it up on your, on your, uh, play on your handy dandy play by play sheet, the Dallas Cowboys collectively after Goff essentially gave them the game with a horrendous interception. They gave him the game on a silver platter. I said, Jer- I even tweeted, I said, Jared Goff, go down the field, win this, win this game for Detroit. And they failed, and they failed to do so. And they got the ball, leaving all they had to do was get Detroit to use up their timeouts, and they failed to do so. Four plays, four yards, took 20 Four seconds off the clock. And then for good measure, Mike McCarthy decides it's a brilliant idea. Let me set my offense on the field on fourth and six to see if I can get Detroit to jump off sides. Hey, Mike, if they jump off sides, it's a five-yard penalty, not a six-yard penalty. It's fourth and six, not fourth and five. A five-yard penalty still leaves you with a fourth down. And if you're a big enough fool to go for it on fourth and one with over a minute to go nursing a four-point lead, if you were my head coach, I would have fired your caucus right there on the spot before you had an opportunity to walk up the runway. And they leave Jared Goff a minute 40 with no timeouts. And when you leave a quarterback that much time, what good is having the timeouts? Minute 40, no timeouts, down seven. You can't manage a game clock much worse than that. When it nearly, nearly could have cost them for doing the exact same stupid bull jive in the Seahawks game. When Mike McCarthy decided it was a brilliant idea to was a brilliant idea to go for it on fourth and two when they had the ball at Seattle's thirty yard line. Oh, no, that's the wrong play. When they decided it was a brilliant idea to throw the ball into the end zone on third down, was it a third and two when they had the ball well within field goal range? Nursing a three-point lead against Seattle back in late November. And then here it is in a similar set of circumstances against Detroit. He does the same thing. And it nearly came back to bite him square where the sun don't shine. Detroit gets the ball. Brilliant drive. Nine plays, 75 yards. Score a touchdown. Somehow, some way, Dan Quinn and their defense, like I said, like I said after the Seahawks game, I said it after the Buffalo game. I said it when they let Tua put together a game-winning drive on Christmas Eve last week. This defense is overrated. 
it, it's not it's it's a very good defense with playmakers on it but it's not a great defense okay uh, what part of being a great defense is knowing how to close is knowing when your quarter whether it's the fault of your of your quarterback or your head coach with his time management a great defense knows how to step on the field nursing a 1.2.3456 8-point lead in the final 2 minutes of a game and knowing how to put their stamp on the game and they know how to finish it and they know how to close this Dallas Cowboy defense does not know how to close out football games they straight up do not they don't the only time that I've the only time when they've played these nip and tuck, the rare of them that they've played in, and that they've been on the winning side on, these play these nip and tuck football games. The only time to see they've been able to do it is against the Seattle Seahawks, who are as inconsistent. That's the only time, only time. They failed against Miami. They failed against Detroit on Saturday night. This is not a clutch slash great defense. They're not. You give them a lead and you say, hey, Mike and the crew, pin your ears back, make a play, seal the deal for us. On two occasions, on back-to-back weeks, they have failed to do that. Nursing a lead in the fourth quarter, late in the final closing minutes of a football game, and they failed twice. Even in the win, they failed. Because Jared Goff, after he threw that, that, that skull numbing interception, which should have put the game on ice. He allowed him to march down the field again one more time in nine plays, 75 yards to score a touchdown and bring themselves within a point. It should have never even came to that, considering that Detroit collectively as a football team scored exactly two touchdowns, one prior to this one. They scored one touchdown the entire game. Until that final drive. They scored one touchdown the entire game. They were one of three in the red zone prior to that drive. One for three. One touchdown all night. Despite the fact they racked up over 400 yards in total offense. They get the ball and they march right down the field. Nine plays, 75 yards, scores a touchdown. Soft soft zone all over the place, just awful. Dan Quinn, you can have him too. Soft, pathetic defense all over the place. They allow Jed Goff to march him down the field, scores a touchdown, brings him within one. And as I sit back and I watch, I'm saying they scored a touchdown, kick the extra point. Okay, same the same philosophy I had yesterday watching the Michigan Alabama game. You score the touchdown, you kick the extra point. When points are hard to come by in a football game, you do not want to extinguish and Thanos snap your momentum, biting off more than you can chew, trying to get the two point conversion to win the game. You don't do it. They scored, one, again, one touchdown all night long. 
You score the second one, great. In a situation where they were blessed to even get the ball back with an opportunity to score the touchdown. You tie the game, you go into overtime. Considering that, again, and defensively for Detroit, they sacked that they sacked that Prescott three times. They ran the ball collectively for only 61 yards. And outside of CeeDee Lamb, their offense did nothing. Outside of CeeDee Lamb, which cooked them. Outside of him, the Dallas offense did nothing all night. Nothing. Only got into the red zone twice and only scored once. Outside of CD, they did nothing. They scored two touchdowns. Two. 14 points. They put up 14 points. They scored two touchdowns, 14 points all night. Outside of CD, nobody, not Dak, not Tony Pollard, Cooks won the factor. All night long. Tie the game at 20 apiece. You go to overtime. You get the coin toss. You ride, If you win, you ride the momentum. And you maybe go down the field in one, hole, in one fell swoop and win the game. Or if you lose the coin toss, you put pressure on Dak for him to march down the field and put the ball into the end zone. And if you're a defensive coordinator for Detroit, you take CeeDee Lamb away, and you dare them to beat you with Dak's other wide receivers. But in that situation, you tie the game. I understand, you know, it's it's against Dan Campbell's way, MCDC, go for the gusto, go big or go home. I understand that. And, and that decision goes against what he has stood for as a head coach with his decision-making this season, and and – it's it's not his way. I get it. But like I referenced in the Charger game, remember when they beat the Chargers with the game-winning field goal early in the season? I said it then, and I'll say it now. The unconventional wisdom with Dan Campbell, it's a blessing and it's a curse. And in this situation on Saturday night, ref ball aside, his unconventional thinking came back to bite the Lions in the ass not just with that touchdown, but also when they refused to take the points and they had to turn over on downs when they had the ball at Dallas's four four yard line with on with a, on the fourth and goal. Five forty five to go in the second quarter. Twice at the end of the game and bypassing the points on the fourth and goal. When points come at a premium. It is imperative, imperative to get to walk away with points in that situation. The game is you're down seven three, okay. It's outside of they scored one touchdown, Dallas did to that point in the entire first half and and throughout the entire game. Dallas's opening possession, Dak throws interception. The drive after the touchdown by Dallas, three plays, negative five yards, punt. They fumble the foot. They fumble the football on first and goal. They fumble the football. Uh, CD Lamb does vi- victim of that stupid rule out of the end zone. They walk away with no points. It's seven three, not seventeen three. You take the points. You're down a point. 
that difference in the game, the one point. Final score, 20-19. 20, 20 On that situation, he decided to chase points. He came back to bite him in the ass when he should have kicked the field goal. And then at the end of the game, you scored a touchdown, 75 yards when you had, when you really, had, again, had no business getting the football back to begin with thanks to the idiocy of Mike McCarthy. You go down the field, you score a touchdown, you kick the X point, you tie the game up. Maybe Dak, maybe Dak throws the interception, you know, when he gets the ball back with 23 seconds to go. They decide to buy off more than they can shoot those interceptions. You just never know. But when points, not yards, but when points come at a premium, you take the points and you ride the and you ride the wave of your momentum. The total yardage says otherwise, but there was not a lot of touchdowns to be scored in this game. When you were fortunate enough to score one in the clutch situation that your offense was, you ride the wave, you tie the game. You hope that it that delivers a, a gashing blow to the Cowboys' confidence and you steal the momentum and you suck the life in the air out of that building. You tie the game and you go and you play for the overtime and whatever else happens, let the chips fall where they may. Instead, he des- instead he decides after instead he decides after the controversial uh, illegal touching penalty. Which takes the touch, which took two points off the board. Then, after a interception thrown by Jared Goff, Micah Parsons jumps off sides, takes it off the board. So that's twice. Then, they, then a timeout is called by, I believe it was by Dallas. And then the fourth time, he decides. Let's run it again. And the pass falls incomplete, and the Lions lose the game. Four opportunities Dan Campbell had. After he got screwed by the refs, the Micah Parsons offsides, the timeout, four opportunities, three, four opportunities to kick the extra point. And with every... Whistle, whether it was via penalty or timeout, I'm saying, Dan, this is a sign. The football gods, the God Jehovah Jireh, whatever, whatever. It's a sign from somebody that's telling you to kick the freaking extra point. And I even tweeted, kick the extra point. Dan, kick, Dan, this is a sign. Kick the extra point. Kick the extra point, Dan. Dan, kick the damn extra point. I must have tweeted about four or five times. Kick the extra point. It's a sign telling you, with your conscience, the football gods, the God, I don't know who or from whom or what, but it's a sign from a higher power somewhere telling you to take the point, take the tie, and kick the extra point. And Dan Campbell was defiant to a fault in this situation, saying, no, I am going to go for two and win this game until either we get denied by Dallas or until we get it, whichever one comes first. 
And like I, again, referencing the Charger game, his decision-making like that where he thinks where the player and the player's mindset overlaps common sense in that situation, this is one of those times. Because the common sense approach, at least in my eyes, was to kick the extra point in the title game up. Dan Campbell, the player, may have wanted just to get off the field so he can enjoy his New Year's Eve weekend and win the game and put the stake through Dallas without having to play an extra period. But the logical, common sense perspective from an outsider was kick the extra point. And that's one of those times where his unconventional thinking slash wisdom came back to bite the lion square in the ass. When, again, they were blessed and fortunate to be in a situation to begin with because Mike McCarthy's an idiot. And Mike McCarthy making those dumb decisions like that and this and his stupid-ass piss-poor time management is going to come back and bite the Dallas Cowboys square in the ass come playoff time. You can book it, write it down, mark the tape, mark the episode, time stamp it when I'm saying this, put a note or a reminder in your phone, whatever. Leave a voice memo, whatever. He pulls this crap Come playoff time, I don't care if it's at home against uh, uh, against Detroit, home against the Rams, home against Green Bay, on the road against San Francisco, hosting Philadelphia, I'm not interested. He pulls this crap in the playoffs. It is going to be the reason why the Dallas Cowboys will find themselves at home later this month if he doesn't stop it. Because it's the second time now where he's had, where he had an opportunity to use common sense and wisdom and football IQ to put the game away when it was gifted to him on a silver platter thanks to the ineptitude of their opponent and they gave their opponent life at the end when they didn't deserve to have it in the first place. It happened in the Seattle game and it happened again Saturday night. And if he doesn't stop it, mark my words, I don't care if Dak Prescott throws for 500 yards, five touchdown passes, and CeeDee Lamb catches 15 balls for two, for 370 yards. The Dallas Cowboys will find themselves at home if Mike McCarthy does not wise up. Especially if their defense is going to make plays to win games for them at the end. It's going to cost them. You mark my words. I don't care how well Dak plays. I don't care how well CeeDee Lamb plays. Coaching matters. Don't believe me? Ask those 90s legends who you can learn a thing or two from about winning championships that were there in attendance for Jimmy Johnson's Ring of Honor ceremony at halftime on Saturday night, if you don't believe me. If you don't think coaching doesn't mean anything. And coaching doesn't matter when it comes to, when it comes to being that final piece of a puzzle to win a championship. You don't think coaching matters. Horrific coaching at the end from Mike McCarthy and Dan Campbell. Horrific from the both of them. Mike's throwing the football over the place instead of running the football, using up clock, milking the clock, and getting Detroit to use their timeouts earlier than they did. And then Dan Campbell biting off more than he can chew, 
chasing the touchdown when a field goal was suffice down 7-3 in the second quarter and then turning around his you know when his team treated the end zone like hot lava for the majority of the night they finally muster up a, a damn good drive they go to the length of the field they score a touchdown you kick the extra point and you ride the momentum and on four separate occasions, he had an opportunity to do a mulligan and say, you know what, let me back check. Let me not get uh, get greedy, bite off more than than we apparently can chew and kick theirs points out of the game. No, he's defiant, and he decides to go for two-point conversion, and he didn't get it. Awful. Now, granted, granted, they did get corked by the, by, by the officials and Brad Allen. Because that is a horrendous, horrendous, horrendous mistake by him and his officiating crew. And I have said it and I have screamed and yelled to the high heavens. And it looks like I'll be I'll be doing it till the day I I croak. Because I have been on the officials time and time again, especially in football, with sticking their beaks in the middle of the, of these games where they don't belong, especially at the end. How many times do I have to come on this show and scream and yell to the high heavens to tell these officials to keep themselves the hell out of these football games at the end? These close, tight games, especially late in the season. How many times do I have to scream and yell about this foolishness? How in the world does Brad Allen make the make the snafu or outright just corks Detroit out of a win with the whole illegal touching penalty? How? And we wonder why. We wonder why. The conspiracies of the games being fixed and or rigged and the refs betting on a game. We wonder why. We wonder why they exist. Because of jabronis like that official on on Saturday night. We wonder why. Brad Allen. That's why. That's why. And if the NFL had any clue, instead of demoting him from refing a playoff game, no, but the NFL, you know what we're going to do? We'll demote him him and his crew from a playoff game, but better yet, we'll have him. Now, the game doesn't mean anything in terms of Baltimore circumstances, but we'll have him referee a game of playoff importance in terms of Pittsburgh and other teams in the AFC wildcard. We'll have him officiate the Ravens-Steelers game on Sunday on Saturday afternoon. We'll give we'll – give, he screwed up and, 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 and pissed down his leg on a national stage on Saturday night, so we'll give him another national stage on a Saturday for Ravens-Steelers. I mean, you must, you must be kidding me. Whether he wasn't paying attention, he, 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 he had a mental lapse, that can't happen. And if it truly was human error and truly was human mistake of either he just had a mental he had a mental lapse, he checked out, wasn't paying attention, didn't listen, whatever the case might be. 
if if I am going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that, then shame on him for punishing Detroit for his screw-up. If that truly is the case, if I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that, he didn't hear, comprehend, whatever the case might be, if that's truly the case, still shame on him for punishing Detroit because of his own screw-ups. And I understand it's a tough job, this, that, and the third. But when you're playing these, it's the second to last weekend of the regular season between two playoff contenders that are competing for an extra home game. Well, it's not only, which not only means matters in terms of the on-field for this team, having another week at home, an extra playoff game, which could prove tremendous dividends for these two teams that are trying to chase San Francisco to be the team to beat the NFC to go to the Super Bowl. But also, you keep in mind the financial aspect of it for both cities. An extra home game means an extra weekend that the, that the hotels and the, and, the, and the small business restaurants and the small uh, business uh, hospitality businesses, they have to make money. The, the, small, the, sm the small business restaurants and hospitality people that can use and could need and desperately use and appreciate that second weekend in which their local football team hosts the home playoff game, they could use that to make an extra couple hundreds of thousands of, if not millions of dollars. And I got Brad Allen pulling this crap at the end of the game. He and his officiating crew and the National Football League, Goodell, you two should be absolutely ashamed, embarrassed, and, and, and beside yourselves. That's a joke. And, and if it was calculated and on purpose, to hell with all of you. He makes an egregious mistake like that. If he either is that careless, that absent-minded, where he where he where he doesn't listen to the lineman, check himself into the game as an eligible receiver, and or he heard him and he just ignored it, just said that ah, to hell with you, Detroit, and he threw the flag anyway. That's uh, he should have his the NFL should have his job for that. And at the bare minimum, his caucus should sit down a week. Not only do you get no playoffs, you don't even get to finish a regular season. That's the, that, If I was his boss, that had been the last game he officiated for the year, literally. And then the weak, pathetic NFL, they suspend them. Let me get this straight. They demote them for the playoffs in one breath, and then in the other breath, they they def they defend these jabronis with the with these weak calculated chat GPT generated heaven ass statements. You must be kidding me. And his name's been plastered all over the place. People calling for his job left and right. Good, keep it up, Brad Allen. Congratulations. I'll make you famous. You're famous now. Post it, clip it, put it on World Star. What a joke. An absolute joke. Especially with Dallas losing on Sunday. That mistake costs Detroit the two seed.
one extra playoff game and could make the difference between either Detroit or Dallas hosting an NFC Championship game if the 49ers get knocked out in the first round. Pure chicken shit. Chicken shit. No other word for it. Absolutely downright pathetic, grotesque, embarrassing, and, 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 and just disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Check his FanDuel, his DraftKings, his BetMGM, his points bet. I don't care. Investigate the hell out of this prick to make sure that he, along with these other assholes and stripes, aren't point-shaving these games and screwing teams over left and right. And shame on the NFL, Goodell, and all he is for, 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 for not holding these referees' feet to the fire. They blow up these games. They put everybody and their mother up in arms, and then they go, they run away, and they hide into, uh, into oblivion, and, they, and we got to hear their opinions and hear them justify their heinous mistakes via some little stupid, you got to read some little stupid manuscript from a pool reporter. Straighten up and fly right, NFL. Wake the hell up. Was at the Super Bowl last week and literally told us, you know, he said, oh, yeah, our officiating, you know, it's great. It's never been better. He said that with a straight face at the Super Bowl last year. Get a clue, Roger, for your team, for your league really blows up in smoke. Get a grip and control. Of your officiating. Especially with, with, with your greedy behinds in bed with these gambling companies. Get a grip and get a clue. Because do you want, after a riveting football game like that, having, having NFL rigged, hashtag rigged, and the name of your head referee trending after the game on Twitter? What a joke. The Philadelphia Eagles, man, they are just, ugh, they are as disgusting to watch as the officials this season. This is this is not a good football team by, by any stretch of circumstances. And I tried to, you know, subject to my, giving my, you know, me, Dishing out a harsh opinion, and I know that Eagles fans, and God bless them for it, can be as harsh and as critical and can dissect and cut their football team, you know, in into into ways that no other fan bases can with their teams. But it's 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 ridiculous, man. This team top to bottom is just not a good football team. They they're poorly coached. They have no sense of direction, leadership, nothing. Nothing with this team makes, makes a lick of damn sense. From the top all the way on down. Sirianni is lost, as clueless as the day is long. He walks around. I mean, what, exa what, what exactly does Nick Sirianni do? What, 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 can, some, can an Eagle fan 
Can somebody, somebody explain to me what Nick Sirianni does? What does he do? Because every single time I see him, he he walks around with the stupid with the stupid visor on. You know, when it rains, he's got that stupid Gatorade towel tucking it tucked in his sweatshirt. He parades. He walks up and down the sidelines, talking crap. He's talking crap, going up the runway tunnel at Arrowhead, talking about getting revenge. Hey, hey, genius! They still got the Super Bowl hanging over your head, you moron. I mean, gee, and if it had not been for MVS, you would have lost that game too. But that's not the end nor there. I mean, wh- what does he do? What does he do? Does he hold anybody on his team accountable? Does, does he get in players' faces? Does he hold his coaching staff accountable, more importantly? What exactly does he do? He he can't manage a game clock. He lets his he lets his assistant coordinators run amok. What exactly does Nick Sirianni do well outside of ride the coattails of his team's high-end talent? Literally. What what does he do? It's just show up to the stadium, act like a act like a jackass, and 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 every now and again, you know, play this. Here I come to save the day. Shut up, Siri. Anybody talking to you? They rely on your high end talent and then call it a day, and then hope that you look up at look up at the scoreboard and you see that the Eagles have more points than the team, and you get the fist pump and act like an idiot, and then on to the next game. I mean, it's just, it's so frustrating to watch. And I picked the Eagles to go to the Super Bowl, and they look like they're going to be a first-round playoff exit. This team doesn't do anything right but coast on high-end talent and make fools out of themselves. And anger, and, and while also vilifying their fan base. They do nothing right. Nothing. And everybody's to blame. Sirianni, Desai, Patricia, Brian Johnson, even Jalen Hurts, and everyone else on down. Everyone else. Their their coordinators stink. Did he work? Did he work to finding a respectable replacement for Shane Steichen and Jonathan Gannon during the offseason? Did they go out and did they interview Bengals defensive coordinator Lou Anarumo during the offseason? Did they think of interviewing the Lions coordinator Brian Johnson? Or or Ben Johnson, excuse me, their offensive coordinator? Did they think of, of getting any offensive mastermind from Jalen Hurts' days at Oklahoma or Alabama? They they chose not to do so. Did they choose to get any did they choose to see if they could throw a, a, a wad of cash at Mike McDonald, the Ravens' defensive coordinator, did they choose not to do so? Did they choose to bring Jim Swartz, who's done a solid job up in Cleveland, who won a Super Bowl for Philadelphia as their D coordinator in 2017? No, they chose not to do Did they do anything but decide, you know what, we're going to play hero ball with Jalen Hurts, rely on the high-end talent of the last two national championship teams of the Georgia Bulldogs, and we'll coast our way to 13-4, and four, have everybody bow down at the altar of the Philadelphia Eagles, and we'll find ourselves in Vegas for a second straight Super Bowl. Because it looks like, to me, that's what their game plan was and has been. This team was 10-1, and, and they've collapsed all the way down to 11-5. and 
10 and 1. They are now 11 and 5 to the point where I believe if Dallas wins on Sunday, they win the NFC East. You blew it! Congratulations, Philly. You had the division and the one seed in the palm of your hands, and you have found a way in two months to flush it down the toilet. Sean Desai is a terrible defensive coordinator. The one strength of the Philadelphia Eagles' pass rush was what? Or excuse me, I gave it away. Their one strength of their defense was what? Their pass rush. Well, Kyla Murray was kept clean and outside of the pick six that he threw that was taking 98 yards to the crib, he had damn near a perfect game. He only got sacked one time. He was 25 or 30 when you do them at that six incomplete passes, threw for three touchdowns, threw for 232 yards. And oh, by the way, for good measure, a simple five-carry, 24-yard rushing performance. And oh, wait, it gets worse. They also surrendered 128 rushing yards on 26 carries from the likes of James Conner. Calamari had six incomplete passes, threw for three touchdowns. James Conner, 26 carries, a buck 28, ran for a touchdown. This Eagles defense stinks. We already knew it that the secondary's cooked. They can't, couldn't even get after the quarterback or stop the run. That, 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 that's, that's horrible. And this is to what? A 3-12 and 12 Arizona Cardinals team? 3-12 and 12 Arizona Cardinals team? A rebuilding Arizona Cardinals team? And they gave up that garbage? They allowed the Arizona Cardinals to put up 449 yards of total offense, averaging 6.2 yards per play, running the football as a team for 221 yards, four of six within the red zone. Seriously? Seriously. Everyone is to blame. Decide. Horrible. Patricia, why he is still employed as a coach, defense, offense, special teams, or handing out Gatorade in 2023 for an NFL franchise. Good Lord. Riding the coattails off of Tom Brady. I, uh, must be like, must be like, you know, back in the biblical days of being one of Jesus's disciples back in biblical times, because it must do wonders for, 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 for not just your professional life. God knows what other perky things Matt Patricia has been able to have fall in line for him since he, you know, shed an office space with Tom Brady back in the day in New England, because why he is still employed at any form of facet on the NFL sideline in 2023, 
I could live to be 500 years old and I'd never be able to comprehend and understand that. He's terrible. The Psy is terrible. Brian Johnson is the worst. Explain to me your thinking if you're Brian Johnson on the Eagles' final drive. They have a holding penalty on first down. Then they decide to put the ball in Jalen Hurts' hands on back-to-back plays. On first and 20 and then second and 16. Then on third and 20. Third and 20 while down the score 30 down or excuse me, with the tie game at 28 apiece, they decide it was a brilliant idea on third and 20 in a tie game to run a screen option play to Kenny Gainwell on third and 20 with the ball at Arizona's 29-yard line with 2.46 to go in regulation. In a tie game. Not let's run the football to get Arizona used to timeouts. Not run the football so we can milk the clock to make sure even if we do just decide to just go for the easy and kick a field goal to leave Arizona with as little time as possible. No, no, no. Let's not do that. Let's let's let, let, let's get, shoot ourselves in the foot with a holding penalty and then call back to back. QB draws with Jalen Hurts when he's nursed a when he's nursed a bad knee injury for eighty percent of this season, and then on third and 16, third and twenty rather, do we decide to take a shot down deep to see at bare minimum if we can draw an illegal contact, a defensive holding, or defensive pass interference penalty, or at least make a decision with the All Pro, Pro Bowl wide receivers that we have. And Julio Jones, who caught two touchdown passes early in the game, and then A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith. Do we decide to throw the ball deep into the end zone to draw a penalty to flip the field so we can drain every last second of the clock or throw the ball into the end zone and we go up seven? No. Third and 20, what do we do? Screen pass to Kenny Gainwell, which gets exactly... Four yards. And the Eagles in six plays take a feeble 2.53 off the clock. Six plays, 14 yards, 2.53. They kick a field goal to take the lead at 31-28. What in the literal hell? Is this football team doing? Are they trying to 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 have a short season? They must not. They must not want to make the playoffs. They they, they must want to get humiliate. They must have a humiliation fetish that we that we don't know about. Because why in the hell would you decide it's a brilliant idea on third and twenty to run a screen pass when you have AJ Brown, Devontae Smith, and Julio Jones at your disposal? And a tie ball game with over two minutes and change to go when your defense has surrendered over 350 to 400 yards of total offense against a three-win football team in late December. They must not want to make the playoffs. They they must want to be a a quick first-round playoff exit so they can wipe their hands clean of their work and do 
whatever for the remaining winter into the spring. Because I can't find the logic or lack thereof in the just tomfoolery that they were pulling throughout that football game on Sunday. They take the lead 31-28, and their defense, again, horrific. Pass rush did nothing. Run defense did nothing. Their secondary does nothing. They got outscored. They've been outscored 30 to nothing in their last, in, in two home games in the third quarter in a six-day period. First and 10 Cardinal ball with not, let's go back, let's even go back to when they tie the game at 28 apiece. Eagles, excuse me, the, the Cardinals have the ball first and 10 with 942 to go in the fourth quarter. Keely Rail gets called for defensive pass interference penalty to move the ball up to Arizona into Philadelphia territory, which led to the game-tying touchdown. That Ringo gave up, flat-footed, lost his hell, fourth and four, gives up the game, gives up the go-ahead touchdown at 28-21, at 28-21 Arizona. With 5.30 to go in the fourth quarter. You can't get worse than that. Tie the game up at 28 apiece. You can't get much worse than that. You can't. You couldn't get you couldn't get much worse if you tried. And then Arizona gets the ball back. Down three. Man coverage just torched and cooked and roasted to smithereens. Missed tackles all over the place. And the Cardinals in seven plays go 70 yards to take the lead at 35-31. Again, this team stinks. They have no, no sense of direction, no sense of leadership. There's no sense of urgency with anybody. Sirianni, the, the assistant coaches, the coordinators, Jalen Hurts, who I love and I admire and respect, he gets up and talks to the media after these games with a deer in the headlights looking lost as hell. It's just the entire operation is, is a complete and utter mess. A mess. Again, Jalen Hurts, God bless him, but when your coaching staff is out to lunch, the strong and silent type, short, one-word, two-word cliche answers with, the, with, with a blank stare, with a blank stare, uh, uh, look on your face, only makes your situation worse. It helps it none. Somebody in that locker room's got to get a grip, because it's the it's been the same dog and pony show for this team for well over a month. You take a look. They again. They started ten and one. They're now eleven and five, uh, without control of their own destiny, and not just the NFC East, but the NFC playoff picture. And if they don't stop, they could find themselves on a plane so fast that Tampa to play the Buccaneers for a first time playoff game. It, 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 it knock your socks off. They are losers of four in their last five games. 
They've lost four out of their last five. Four out of the last five. Their defense has stunk in essentially every game since week 12 against Buffalo. Yeah, they give only 17 points to Seattle, but the, you know what? They surrendered a 92-yard game-winning touchdown drive orchestrated by Drew Locke in the Monday night game two weeks ago. They gave up 33 points to Dallas. They gave up 42 points to San Francisco. They gave up thir- they gave up 25 points to Tyrod Taylor and the New York football giants, for crying out loud. And they gave up 35 points to Kyler Murray and, and the Arizona Cardinals. This team is dead man walking. And everybody and their mother sees it, knows it, acknowledges it, and is just counting down the days and counting down the games until it's sayonara and we're playing taps for the 2023 Philadelphia Eagles. Awful, pathetic, and embarrassing. Garbage from the Philadelphia Eagles. The Baltimore Ravens, they aren't garbage. They aren't garbage. They're, 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 you know what they are? They're a damn good football team. They got a good defense. They know how to win. They know how to close out games. They know how to stomp and beat the ever-loving piss out of their opponents. Something that Philadelphia does not do. The Ravens, they, got, they win their division for the first time since 2019. They earned the title of best record in home field advantage throughout the AFC playoffs for the first time since 2019. And Lamar Jackson is on pace to do something he has not done since 2019, and that's win an NFL MVP. Perfect passer rating, 22 of 38. No, excuse me, that's two of his numbers, 22 of 38. Perfect passer rating, 18 of 21, 321 yards of passing, five touchdown passes. Ran the ball six times for 35 yards. An absolutely sensational day at the office for the Baltimore Ravens. Sensational. And I will get to the fraudulent Miami Dolphins in a minute. What a job by them. What a job by Lamar Jackson. Putting the team on his back. And by the way, he's doing this without his safety net and his safety security blanket in Mark Andrews. And he's doing this. Every challenge that has been thrown in the Ravens' way throughout the entire season, whether it be the Detroit Lions, whether it be the Jaguars, the Dolphins, the San Francisco 49ers, the Cincinnati Bengals, every challenge, the Cleveland Browns at least in week four, and then granted they weren't, they were, you know, on the edge in week four, but still, I mean, they went against Cleveland, went against Cleveland, a playoff team, 10 win team, it still counts the same, nevertheless. Every challenge this team has been thrown has gotten thrown in their face. Every test they've passed. Cincy twice they've passed. Uh, the Seahawks at home they've passed. The Lions at home they've passed. The 49ers on the road they've passed. The Dolphins at home they've passed. The Jaguars on the road they've passed. The Rams at home they've passed. Every single team you throw in, you you throw you can throw the kitchen sink at this team, and they'll find a, and they'll somehow find a way to win. This team has just found a way to win, and the only time they've lost is because of their own self-inflicted, typical trademark Raven mistakes and collapses in the fourth quarter. But they have the Ravens have beaten the Ravens 
No other team has beaten the Ravens. Every every team just check go off the checklist. Browns check, Titans check, Lions check, Cardinals, Seahawks, Bengals, Chargers, Rams, Jaguars. I mean, they have not lost a game since November the 12th. They have not lost a football game since November the 12th. They have not lost a game in a good month and change. They are riding a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 game winning streak. Lamar Jackson right now, folks, has three games with a perfect passer rating. That's tied for the most in NFL history. The ones to join him, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Kurt Warner, and Ben Roethlisberger. He joins Brady again when when Brady did it against the Lions. Lamar Jackson joins him as the only players, only players, set of players to have multiple games with a perfect pass rating against a single opponent. Brady did it in 2010 and in 2020 against the Lions, and Lamar has done it against the Dolphins twice in his career. The Ravens have won 10 games against teams with a winning record. That's the most in the NFL. Lamar has a career, has an NFL high 21 touchdown passes against teams with a winning record. The only player with more rushing yards against teams with a running record than Lamar Jackson is CMC with 966. He's got the sixth best complete percentage in the game. He's got the fourth best yards, passing yards per attempt in the, in the game. 24 passing touchdowns, seventh inter, seven interceptions, fourth best, high, fourth best ratio in the sport, and the fifth best passer rating in all of football. He's got four career touchdown passes of he's got four career touchdowns of 75 yards or more. All of them have come against the Miami Dolphins. The Ravens have the most wins, 14 uh, 14 points or more, margin of victory, 14 points or more against teams with the winning record entering the game in NFL history. The most 14 plus points wins, 14 plus points wins against teams with a winning record in NFL history. Joining the 14, 2014 New England Patriots. Unbelievable stuff from the Ravens. They earned it, man. Hate can't stand them. This run that they've been on, especially with my team being out to lunch, makes me sick. But you tip your cap, you give them credit. Because, they, because nothing, nothing has been given to them. They've taken and earned everything. Everything they have gotten and earned. Taken and earned everything. Give them a crap ton of credit. Give Lamar credit. Give Harbaugh credit. McDonald, who is would be my pick for assistant coach, give him tremendous credit. That defense has done an absolutely sensational job. Just... Give them a round of applause, a round of applause all the way around. Now, in terms of the Miami Dolphins, <clears throat> they still keeping receipts. I'm just, I'm just asking. You still keeping receipts? Still keeping receipts? Because you still, whether Tua likes it and wants to admit it, whether Tyree Kill likes it and wants to admit it, whether Mike McDaniel, who I like, wants to admit it or not, 
you're a fraudulent-ass football team. You're as fraudulent as the broads you see on these Real Housewives shows on Bravo. That's how, that's how fraudulent you are. You're as fraudulent and as fake as the damn Kardashians. Fake, fraudulent, front-running. That's what you are, especially on the road. You've taken L's on the road to the Ravens, to the Chiefs, to the Eagles, to the Bills. You can't beat teams of playoff caliber or better on the road this season. It's been the name and the MO and the brand of your season against playoff, high-end, level, talented football teams on the road. You don't win. Case closed, period, end of story. I don't want to hear no crap about this being a, being a made-up narrative, this being, you know, something that the media is doing to, you know, because they got an ax to grind against the Dolphins. Bull crap. I don't want to hear it. You want the narrative to change? Win games on the road against high-end against high level teams that are either at the same level as you in terms of, in terms of, uh, in terms of quality of opponent or a step up in class because every single test that's been thrown in your, like I said with the Ravens, every single test has been thrown in their face. They've passed with flying colors. Every single test that's been thrown in the, in the Dolphins' face, they failed outside of one, and that's Dallas last week. But the Dallas game, I can count it only but so much because Dallas is just as fraudulent and just as front-running as the Dolphins are. So it's so it's like that win against the team that you played, it cancels each other out. But against inferior, or excuse me, superior, same level or and or superior playoff caliber football teams, the the Miami Dolphins have come up small each and every single time, and they deserve to have their feet held to the fire on that because of that. And until something, until they prove. Us otherwise improve themselves otherwise. It's going. It's the narrative, quote unquote, whatever you want to call it. The narrative, the trend, whatever you want to call. It, it's it's going to remain the same. It's going to remain the same. They have the power to fix it, and they've had the power to fix it on one, two, three, four separate occasions, and have failed each and every single time. That's not on me. That's not on you. That's not on the the the, the vast mainstream uh, football slash sports media. It's on them. Because at the end of the day, they play the games. We just react and give opinions and analyze and critique after the fact. But they play the games. It's on them. They play the games. And they can't get mad at any of us for calling a spade a spade and calling fat meat greasy because they go out there against high against high end teams within the AFC such as Buffalo and the Ravens and they get their teeth kicked in sideways and and and, and embarrass themselves on the road against teams that they that they are going to have to beat in order to get to the Super Bowl, let alone win one. And they've come up small in each and every single opportunity. Giving up 56 points. And why Mike McDaniel, again, a guy who I'm a fan of, who I like and root for, why he kept Bradley Chubb in the game when this, when his team was down 30 
with 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 less than five minutes to go in the football game, I, there there's no there's no rhyme or reason to explain it, and there's no excuse for keeping him in the game, none whatsoever, none. The game is over, Mike. You got too much to play for. You got a big time playoff esque game with a lot riding on it against Buffalo next week. Game's over. Take your L, wave the white flag, and take your starters the hell out the damn game. Why he kept him, Tua, among others, in that game late into the fourth quarter when the game was 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 over in the third, I I I can't I can't ex- explain, comprehend, or excuse that reasoning and, and that logic or lack thereof behind that decision. But I just want to, I, again, I just want to know, you guys keeping receipts? You guys keeping receipts? Because he had Tua getting all up in his feelings like Kiki, and he pissed all over himself. All over himself. Two interceptions, horrendous passes. He's a statue, not mobile, sacked three times, just terrible. 237 passing yards, 22 of 38. That's, that's dog water. And again, a shirt that this team had to have to stay in a conversation for the one seed, that's dog water. Dog water. The, the New Orleans Saints stay in a conversation to get the uh, stay in a conversation to get the division title from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with the 23-13 victory on Sunday afternoon. Uh, my takeaways from this game: Listen, Derek Carr played a strong football played a uh, strong football game. Not not a great game, wasn't perfect, but played strong, well enough to win. Uh, did not turn over. He did not turn over uh, the football at all. So, which in his case, with him historically, when you assess his game, was a huge positive. Threw for two touchdowns. Um, you know, offensively, they they were aggressive and 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 played well early and often, and put the pressure on Tampa Bay early. They couldn't respond. And like I said last week with Baker Mayfield, it's a true fact. When nobody's watching him and nobody's caring about how well he's playing and nobody expects anything out of him. He 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 plays like a he plays like a pro bowler, but when people but when you shine the light and you put the pressure on Baker Mayfield, say okay, Bake, I know what you have. Go out there and bake and cook up a victory for me and take this game and take your team season by the horns. He he fit he failed he failed to do so. He failed to rise to the occasion. Twenty three of thirty three through two interceptions got banged around by the Saints pass rush and and he cooled off at the worst possible time. Bucks were held scoreless for three quarters. That's not good enough to win football games, especially when you're trying to fight off a division rival to win the division to make the playoffs. That's not good enough. Didn't get to the red zone at all. Unacceptable. Two of eight on third downs. Unacceptable. O-line, like I said, horrific. The drops, just bad turnovers. Just a pure slop fest from Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a team that I thought that they, that was going to beat the uh, Saints comfortably on Sunday afternoon as they go into week 18 with the division title up for grabs. Uh, the Rams get lucky, and yes, they did get lucky. Uh, you know, Watching that game, I did not get the sense and get the feeling saying, oh, wow, oh, look at the L.A. Rams, man. They're going to be a team 
that's going to that's going to uh, that's going to be a, a tough out a la the Cleveland Browns or the Buffalo Bills come the come the NFC play. I did not walk away with that with that uh, with that feeling and that reaction even after their playoff clinching victory over the football giants 26-25 and for these various reasons that I'll set out here for you. First off, Sean McVay has got to know better and has got to, you know, keep his head in the game and use a little bit of common sense here. Why he decides to go for it and on his team when his team's got the ball at the Giants' 21-yard line, 8:36 going the first quarter, nothing, nothing score, fourth and three, Sean. You're a better team than the Giants. You got a better roster, one through 53, with a better quarterback, and you're the better head coach. Okay, why get involved into a tit for tat, you know, uh, pissing match in terms of trying to chase points and be and be recklessly aggressive when you don't have to be, especially this early in the game. The fourth and three, you had the ball to the Giants, 21-yard line. You take your points. You kick the three, and you go up 3 nothing. Instead, he goes for it. Receiver drops the pass. They rule it complete. Giants challenge. They win the challenge, ruled incomplete. Giant, the, uh, the Rams walk away from their, walk away from their opening drive Despite 11 plays, 54 yards, and 620 off the plot, off the clock, they walk away with nothing. Now, because the Giants are inept, they do nothing. Uh, they do nothing in turn. Three plays, four yards, and they punt. Rams get the ball back. Their second possession of the game, go up uh, seven nothing with a uh, eight play, 72 yard touchdown drive. But McVay, you're better than this. You're smarter than this. Take the damn points. Will you please take the points? Take the points. And the another thing that also would worry me if I'm a Ram fan, the turnovers. Matthew Stafford overthrew Puka Nakua over the, over the middle of the field for an interception. Demarcus Robinson had a horrendous had a horrendous uh, horrendous fumble on a, on their first play uh, from scrimmage when they had the ball at their own 27 yard line with a minute seven to go before the half, and uh, Demarcus Robinson fumbles in the middle of the field. And the Giants recover it and are able to uh and the Giants recover it and they're able to turn it into three points before the half and go into the halftime locker room down four, fourteen, ten. I mean, that's two that's two turnovers in the first half that easily could have been fourteen points that come playoff time will result in a fourteen point swing. But they're playing the ten loss Giants. It only results in three, but come playoff time, they're not gonna get away with coughing up the football twice, a bad interception by Stafford, and then a Demarcus Robinson fumble, and only walk away with the lead, mind you, at halftime with the Giants, or excuse me, with their opponents only scoring three points off the two first-half turnovers. Come playoff time, it's going to result bare minimum 10 points, minimum six points, two field goals, and or worst-case scenario, two touchdowns. You're not going to get away with that and win and win in the playoffs. Turn over the football left and right. You, you're just not going to. Uh, and then also later in the game, Matthew Stafford had a horrendous interception. This one was uh, was with uh, four. No, it was with two twenty to go in the third quarter. First and ten had about the thirty-seven yard line. Uh, misfires to Demarcus Robinson. Throws an interception intercepted by Belton. Giants get the ball back, march down the field, ten plays, twenty-one yards, kick a field goal to uh, take to kick a field goal to pull within one. The Rams lead uh, truncates the twenty to nineteen. 
Playoff time, that's a touchdown, and the Rams are losing heading into the fourth quarter. You're not gonna get away with you're not gonna get away with turning over the football three times, only resulting in six points. Playoff time, that's that's 17 or 21 points flushed down the toilet. So McVay, the turnovers, and then the Rams with their special teams. They get an extra point block to keep the game to to uh to uh keep the game, keep the score, I should say, at 26-19. Then they then in the fourth quarter they surrender a Gunnar Oshevsky uh, punt return good for uh, 58 yards to give the to uh, give the uh, Giants to pull the Giants within within a point at 26-25. Fortunate fortunate for LA, Tyrod Taylor couldn't throw a three yard little you know dink and dunk to Saquon Barkley. Otherwise, if that ball is thrown on target, Barkley catches it, walks into the end zone, and the Giants go up 1-27-26. So they caught a break there. But the special teams gaffe, the missed extra point to keep the score at 26-19, then their punt team surrenders the 58-yard house call by Gunnar Olszewski to pull the Giants within a point. On top of the three turnovers that only results in that only results in six points for the Giants, and McVay bypassing three points on his own right on the on the Rams opening possession, the Rams were very, very, very fortunate to win the football game. And like I've said all season long, their offensive line stinks. Stafford got sacked four times. So sacks, turnovers, and 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 not playing clean in all three phases with the third phase being special teams don't get too ahead of yourself thinking that the Rams are all of a sudden going to be this Cinderella team that's going to that's going to you know cakewalk their way to a, to a NFC championship game cuz playing like that against the lowly Giants on the road is a surefire way to get your ass sent home and come in you know come wild card weekend quick way to get sent home Spe- not being bundled up on special teams, battle line play, turning over the football, and bypassing three points. Quick way to get sent home. So all the talk about the Rams being some, you know, being essentially the Cleveland Browns of the NFC, a team that could be a wild card team that can make a Super Bowl run. Uh, don't, 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 don't drink the Kool Aid, because you watch this team play especially off of their game against the Giants and even the Raven game a few weeks back. They say the Rams' results during the game says otherwise. Quarters one through four, their play says otherwise. And then how about the Seattle Seahawks? What a frustrating football team they are. I mean, my goodness gracious me. I mean, this is a football team, man. That is as Jekyll and Hyde and as inconsistent as the day is long. And that's why the Seattle Seahawks folks are not going to make the why they're not going to make the playoffs. And why, if you wanted to tell me that that uh that you would fire Pete Carroll if you were in charge of the Sam or excuse me, in charge of the Seattle Seahawks, I would not argue you and fight you uh one bit. Because this is why. The team is sloppy, inconsistent not buttoned up, and even in games that they win, they don't play complete football games for a full 60 minutes. 
I mean, it's it's, and they've had they've left too many winnable games on the table this season. That you you can go back in early in the season, a game that they should have had. Uh, they had no business losing thirty to thirteen. It wasn't a winnable game in terms of it being one a one score game. But they had no business getting ambushed by the Rams at home week one. Uh, they blew the game in Cincinnati. Had multiple red zone trips, and it came up empty in the Bengal game in mid October. Uh, they lost the game that they that they should have won, and they shouldn't have kept the Rams in the game for them to win the uh, sat the Sunday before Thanksgiving, week eleven on on November nineteenth. They lost the game that they should have won had their defense been able to get a couple of stops and had it not been for a, a turnover or two by Geno Smith on the Thursday night game, week thirteen on November thirtieth. I mean, that's I mean that's that's one, two, three. Losses right there, three went. That's that's three losses that should have been wins. This team bare minimum. If those three, if three out of their eight losses go the other way as they rightfully should have, from a Seattle perspective, they're sitting with an with an eleven and five record, heading into week eighteen. Those three losses go the other way. They had the the Bengal game, the Cowboy game, and the second Rand game. They got eleven wins. And they have the talent to win to win 11, 12 games. The problem is they're sloppy, they're inconsistent. They're one of the more highly penalized football teams in the National Football League, and they're inconsistent. One week they like they can beat any team in football. You know they take down the Philadelphia Eagles, and they, and they're able and they're able to beat Cleveland at home and go toe to toe with Cincinnati. And hell, they go out. They went to Detroit for their home opener back on back in week two in in September. They take them to overtime. They win in overtime 37-31. So, I mean, they give you signs of promise. They can beat any team in football, and their uh, resume goes to show you that they have and that they can, yet against teams and in games that they should win, they invent new ways to lose. You know, the the second Ram game, they get humiliated by the foot by the uh, you know by the Forty ers and the Ravens, and they lose at home to teams that they should beat, such as the Rams and the Steelers. And that's why they're not going to make the playoffs. That inconsistent roller coaster. That's that. It's good. It's good if you're playing games for the for the drama and the entertainment effect, and to give your fan base heart attacks. But it does not result in winning football games, and in turn making the playoffs, and in turn winning a championship. Just doesn't. Surrendering, uh, allowing Pittsburgh to go damn near about or thereabouts 50 percent on third down, two of three on fourth down, unacceptable. Surrendering four hundred sixty-eight yards of total offense is completely unacceptable. I mean, and then in turn they allowed Najee Harris to run for a season-high 122 rushing yards and two touchdowns on 27 carries. And, oh, by the way, here's George Pickens, seven receptions for a buck 31. And let Mason Rudolph look like look like the second coming of Ben Roethlisberger. You can't expect to win football games and making the playoffs playing that way defensively. Not a chance. And then offensively, you know, they ham and egg their way scoring two touchdowns in the second quarter, and then their offense takes the first, third, and fourth quarter off. Can't run the ball. Outside of Metcalf, the passing game was non-existent. Just not good. And again, even in games that they win, they, they, don't, they don't put together a complete game. 
the Lion game, their de- their in the Lions game week two, their defense was was horrendous. Their you know their defense wasn't great. Their defense wasn't great. Hell, in the Panther game, they allowed Andy Dalton to throw for three hundred sixty one yards and two touchdown passes. Their defense played well enough to win in the Bengal game. Their offense didn't show up. Defense wasn't great in the Commander game. They won 29-26. Offense put together the final drive there at the end, but was stuck in neutral for the first, what, 58 minutes of the game against Philadelphia on that that Monday night. Offense was stuck in neutral on New Year's Eve against Tennessee. So even in games that Seattle's, you know, they play well enough to win and, and make the appropriate plays for them to win, they don't play a complete game, even in the games that they've won this year. And leaving too many winnable games on the playoffs get, gives you a early ticket to Cancun for the winter. Case, case close. Couldn't stop the run. Secondary got torched by George Pickens all game long. And then the offense, non-existent. Could they grow the game, which what we didn't know at the time, but and you look at it, you know, hindsight twenty twenty. Could they grow the game when Geno got strip sacked with uh, down twenty seven twenty. Pittsburgh gets the ball back, they kick a field goal, they go they go up thirty to twenty, end of the game. That just can't happen. Cannot happen under any circumstances. So. Seahawks, no playoffs for them, and I guess I, I can thank them for uh, uh, for the Bengals getting their coup de grace and them being eliminated from playoff contention on Sunday. I'll eulogize their season, summarize their season in a minute. But, um, yeah, I mean, the Seahawks, it is what it is. And if Pete Carroll, if, it, if, the, if there's murmurs and rumblings, they want to let Pete Carroll go, I see why. Young team, talented team, can beat anybody in the league, can be clutch at times, but... The inconsistency is too much. You got to find some consistency with this young roster. You got to. You made the playoffs last year. Great. Things broke your way. May not break your way this year. Part of the reason why? The inconsistency. You got to know how to finish games. When you when you play games that you play one off the win, you got to put together a complete game every once in a while. And you got to be able to run the football consistently. Something the Seahawks have not been able to do well throughout the throughout the uh, throughout this entire season and in terms of Pittsburgh listen Steelers are mid they're mediocre congratulations they can parade around that asinine you know plus 500 winning record Tomlin stat until they blow in the face I could care less it changes nothing it means nothing the Steelers still aren't winning shit until they take drastic changes even if they make the playoffs, they're not winning a playoff game. If everything were to break for them to make the playoffs, which would be a damn disgrace and joke. They are what they are, a bumbling football team that's trying to find their way with a bunch of immature players on it. Mike Tomlin lets those players get away with murder, and uh, he's willing to tolerate it because, I don't know, reasons. I, I can't. I, I, I can't explain for half the bull jive that goes on with Pittsburgh sometimes because if I did, it'd make my damn brain explode. And finally, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. I just want to just get my two cents out the way and then just to hell with them until the end, until uh, the training camp of next year, or at least at the bare minimum until free agency starts 
and uh, we see what they're going to do with their impending free agents, whose last game as the Cincinnati Bengals could be as uh, soon and as soon and as recent as this upcoming Sunday against Cleveland. But the Bengals officially, mathematically, were eliminated from playoff contention due to the Steelers, incon- or excuse me, the Seahawks' inconsistencies and in them, uh, you know, deciding that offense was optional in the second half against Kansas City. Um, I mean, what more, what more honest to God do you want me to do? Do you want me to say the Bengals, it was just, it was not a, you know, when, and then I hate it. I hate it because, you know, when I, and I still obviously am a Baltimore Orioles fan, but when I watch Oriole games and when there was a good uh, period of time when my grandmother who lived with my family for for a handful of years we'd watch games and it'd be a game that I'd want the Orioles to win desperately for whatever the reason to avoid getting swept you know standings whatever you know I wanted them to win that game more than most whatever the case might have been and I would get upset when they would lose and one of the things that my grandmother would say to me and it would chat my ass because it goes against everything that I stand for and I, you know, live by, not just in terms of my perspective when it comes to my teams as a fan, but uh, as just in just in general, how I like look at life is, well, it, it, what she'd say to me, well, Jaya just wasn't meant to be, which, you know, I'm like, what do you mean? If it wasn't meant to be, then why do we bother? Why do we play the games? Why do, why, why do we do anything? If anything, if things are meant to be and things aren't meant to be. But this year for my Bengals literally was one of those times where that phrase, it wasn't meant to be, it applies. And, and, and it's the appropriate sentence, the appropriate verbiage to describe this team's season. And it just, for whatever the reason, this year for my Cincinnati Bengals, it just did not click. Uh, and even when Burrow was healthy, it, the season for us just did not it, it it didn't click which how i feel about it it bothers me it it bothers me it annoys me it upsets me it frustrates me it angers me i think that i the, the fact that the bengal's um you know season that i saw it in person the bengal season go up in smoke uh, is is frustrate is frustrating and it annoys and it just it irks me and, and angers me as a as a as a lifelong diehard uh, fan of this team. It just it does. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, beat around the bush and play word salad. It does. You know, and like I told you guys at the time, you know, seeing him, you know, seeing him. Uh, go into the locker room and him wince on, on the sideline and him, you know, be in such pain like that on the national primetime stage. I mean, it's and, and the feeling of me sitting in that stadium, you know, with the hood on my head, just as my team season just dies and just, you know, let me see if I if I can find the uh, if I if I can find the the the, the, the sound effect, because this is what the season was like for a little play. painful painful and because we were in such a hole to begin with 
and then he goes down, and then Browning comes, and then we don't show up against Pittsburgh, and then we go on a three-game winning streak with miraculous two overtime victories against Jacksonville and against uh, the Vikings, and then we kick the piss out of the Colts in Week 14. And then you, and then, and let's be honest, and also call a spade a spade in this aspect too. The, our season officially, like, a, like any hope of us putting together a miracle playoff run, died when we lost to the Steelers the Saturday before Christmas. I said it at the time. I kind of knew it in the back of my head the the night that it happened. That that's when our season officially died. It was on life support when Burrow got hurt. And it relatively and our Super Bowl aspirations ended there. Our aspirations to extend our season and at least have an opportunity to get into the dance died when we didn't bother to show up this Saturday, excuse me, before Christmas. And then they go out there, Kansas City, they lose the game 25-17. They, you know, they started out the game, you know, they ran the football thing. It was one of them the 21 times, whatever the case was. The times that Bar- that uh, that Zach Taylor chose to run the football in the first half was among the most that he decided to run the football in the first half since he's been the head coach of Cincinnati. That's all fine and dandy, that in the third. They didn't have a, you know, they ran the football okay. I mean, I guess, whatever. It just, the game was whatever. I mean, they fought hard. They scored 14 points in the second quarter. They really took it to Kansas City, and I thought 17-6. Excuse me, 17-13 heading into the halftime locker room. We're going to be cooking with gas, this, that, and the third. And then the offense just, you know, did nothing. I mean, it just – and the story of this and the story of the team, you know, has been the lack of forcing turnovers. And yet another game, the Bengals win the turnover battle, and, and, they, and, they, and they lose, which, which is just completely unacceptable. I mean, you take a look – at the, uh, take a look. I mean, they scored a they scored a touchdown off the Kansas City fumble, which is a positive. But you know, they couldn't score any turnovers after that. The pass, I mean, the Kansas City Chief offensive line was a sieve the week before against Vegas, and they only got the Mahomes twice, and they didn't hurry them. They didn't. The pass rush didn't get home uh, enough in a timely manner. You know, to uh, you know to, to stall out drives for Kansas City to. Uh, you know, the fourth string, it just wasn't good. It just was not good enough. Bad enough, again, like I said, it seemed, they hold, especially at home, more than any team in the sport, and they get away with it because Chiefs, Mahomes, and all that bull drive. The pass rush was, uh, you know, non-existent for the most part. Didn't, didn't, you, they, they wasn't existent enough where you felt that they enforced their will onto the Chiefs' offensive line throughout the game. It just wasn't. And then, obviously, defensively, it's been the same song and dance all year long. They, they give up the big, they give up too many big plays. The Rashid Rice 67 yard bomb that was a part of his five reception, a buck 27 afternoon, just completely utter and utterly inexcusable. Uh, Watson had a 41 yard uh, big, ga- big gain. Uh, it's, I mean, it's just same shit, different toilet from the Bengals defense. It's been the MO of their defense all season long and why they are where they are. And that's, uh, you know, nowhere with nothing. Uh, Pacheco, and again, whether it was giving up the big plays with the pass defense and then the run defense, which just is horrific. Isaiah Pacheco, 18 carries, a buck 30 on the ground, averaged 7.2 yards per 7.2 yards per carry. 
that's pathetic losing football. You don't deserve to make the playoffs. We have an awful defense. Way how awful are the Bengals' defense against the pass and against the run was this season? And I said it, and I you know, and I said it all season long. The mo of the Bengals' defense was, and and what was their saving grace is their ability to force turnovers. And if they couldn't force turnovers, their defense really was disgusting. What kept them barely a. a you know, floating above with their heads above with their heads above water was their ability to force turnovers. When they don't force turnovers, they're not a good. They're not they're not even a good defense when they force turnovers. When they don't force turnovers, they go from bad to a sieve. So, what else? Did, what else did you want me? What What more do you want me to say? What more do you want me to say? They, I mean, and now granted, they kept they held Kansas City three or twelve on third downs. They were able to get off the field on third downs. They they allowed Mahomes to scramble on a fourth and short because Jermaine Pratt can't tackle. He's whiffing tackles left and right, and they held Kansas City to one of three inside the red zone, which kept us in the game. But but in situations like that, when scoring comes at a premium and 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 field position is so important in a defensive battle, which it kind of was in a game of this magnitude. You can't even – you're not even in a position, especially when you have no Joe Burrow at quarterback, where you can afford to lose the field position battle, which they inevitably did. So, I mean, it, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, uh, you take a look uh, at the stats. Harrison Butker, first Chiefs kick, is the first kicker in NFL history. makes six consecutive field goals to account for the final 18 points of the game. He was their offensive MVP. Um, yeah, that's all there is to it. Uh, and give Ladarius Sneed credit, you know. Jamar Chase ran off at the mouth prior to the game. I said it on Friday's show, on Saturday's show how stupid and asinine it was uh, for him to talk crap, uh, especially, you know, given the sets of circumstances on our end and then with Kansas City all pissed off after the Raider loss and this being essentially the best defense and the best secondary that they've had, you know, in the Mahomes-Andy Reid era since 2018. Gives Spagnuolo a ton of credit, who I've been very critical of over the years. He punched up a, a tremendous defensive game plan, which worked with T for three out of the four quarters of the game. You know, uh... Jake Browning had him running for his life, especially in the fourth quarter. He was untouchable quarters, and that's the real frustrating part from from my perspective. Jake Browning, the offensive line, kept them clean for 75% of the game, and yet the most important yet remaining 15%, it was open season. He got sacked six times. I mean, and how apropos, again, the Bengals, all, the Bengals season ends for a third straight season because the offensive line can't keep their damn quarterback clean. I mean, you got to be fucking kidding me, man. And the second straight season, it happens at Arrowhead, no less, too. It's it's just unacceptable slop. Unacceptable slop. And, again, going back to Spagnolo, hell of a job. Defensive game plan, work to a T. Secondary, lock Jamar Chase up. Seven receptions. Here it is. He was tar- coverage rate. He covered Ladarius Sneed covered Jamar Chase 61% of the time. He got targeted three times, surrendered two receptions for a total of 27 yards. Jamar Chase for the game, seven targets, 41 receiving yards, 41, excuse me, 41 receiving yards on three receptions, no touchdowns. Jamar, was it really necessary to poke the bear? Everything is against us and went in their favor heading into this game as is. And he runs off at the mouth, talks crap, gets Ladarius Sneed and the crew stand on business. He gets the shit kicked in, and then he doubles down in the end. 
I'm all for trash talking, talking smack. But when it's to the point where it makes you look like a horse's ass, it comes time where you got to STFU, take your L like a man and keep it moving. Because because seven target seven targets, three receptions, 41 yards ain't scaring nobody. I don't care if you're Jamar Chase or you're Jerry Rice. And you and you and you talk the crap after the game. Well, their secondary, you know, it ain't ain't much of anything. This, that, and the third. They had nothing. Who are those guys? And you get shut down like that, and you lose the game 20, 25 to seventeen, and your offense can't can't muster up one lousy point. Jamar, I hate to do this to you, but you shouldn't have been talking shit. Should have kept your mouth shut. Just saying, but. It's, it's it is what it is with the Bengals. It just it's just just an awful, pathetic, disgusting, embarrassing season. Super Bowler bust, and they bust loud and 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 hard and in embarrassing, humiliating fashion. Despite Jake Browning's best efforts to keep our season afloat and to keep us playing meaningful football as deep into the season as he possibly could. So give him credit and give him kudos, but it's just it's just awful, man. Awful. The the two steel the two Steeler losses were, are completely inexcusable for similar yet different reasons, and had this team been able to take care of business with when Burrow was on the field, with that inexplicable loss to Tennessee where they got punked twenty seven to three in Week Four, um you know when they were asleep at the wheel and sleep and sleepwalking in the Texan game in Week Ten, uh when in, in Week Ten on November the twelfth. Um, and you know, and losing this pit, losing to the Ravens, not in, in the defense, unable to have a clue to find a way to stop Lamar Jackson in week two. It's just awful, just awful, pathetic, embarrassing slop. And they deserve what they get. This team didn't deserve to make the playoffs. They didn't deserve to play to win the division. They didn't deserve to play to to three-peat as AFC North champions. They didn't deserve to make it to a third straight AFC championship game and make it to their second Super Bowl in three seasons. They didn't deserve it because they played like absolute horseshit from outside outside of their, uh, their cute four-game winning streak in late October, early November. And uh, and the three game winning streak early in uh, you know in early in early December they you know they they were garbage they were garbage inconsistent up and down the Jekyll and Hyde is not how you win games on a consistent basis not how you win games not how you win your division make the playoffs get to the AFC Championship game win the Super Bowl it's just not how it goes guys you gotta play consistent. Weeks 1 through 18. I understand slides and losses happen, but the but the flip-flop, yin and the yang, you know, one extreme or the other, and how this team played throughout this entire season, it's not good enough, and it's not ever going to be good enough. It isn't. Zach Taylor, again. Paul Brown one week, Adam Gase the next, and vice, and vice versa. That's not how you win football games. I don't care how many times you beat Kansas City and Buffalo. It's not going to be good enough. And going 0-5 within the division is downright embarrassing. I crap on Pittsburgh, and rightfully so, for their flaws and their issues and their problems. But damn it, Mike Tomlin at least makes sure that his, makes sure that his team's on his P's and Q's for divisional games. 
and the Bengals are a better team with a better roster and a better quarterback than, than the Pittsburgh Steelers, and yet they can't find a way to get that together. They can't, they can't, they can't, I mean, it's just, it just, it doesn't click for them. Doesn't click for them. They split Pittsburgh, split the Ravens last season. They split every team within the division. Fortunate enough to win the division, but they split every team. One and one, one and one, one and one. Do the math, that's three and three. Eh, not, not great. I understand it's the toughest, most hardest, most physical division and football. I get that. I understand that. But it's a game of adaptive die. We're going to do to fix it. Because all I know is that since Joe Bro has been our starting quarterback, we're 8 and 14 within the division. Despite the two back to back division titles, that's not good enough. You can't expect to win Super Bowls and win your division playing like that within the division. Because the division losses, they count double. Not only is it, is it a knock against your divisional record in terms of tiebreaker, it also counts as conference losses. And the Bengals this season are 0-5 within the division. They're winless within the division and 3-8 and within the conference. That, my friends, is a recipe for no playoffs and last place in the AFC North. And they have nobody to blame from but themselves. I understand, bro, with the calf injury, second day of training camp, bad luck, I get that. The injury that happened in the Ravens game, bad luck, I get that. But even when you throw out the elements of them being a victim to bad luck, they also had their episodes of self-inflicted ineptitude. Whether it was the arrogance of Burrow and the coaching staff to, to have him play, to start the season when he when we knew that he wasn't right, whether it was you know Zach Taylor with his mind numbing, asinine decision making and play calling and Jekyll and Hyde play calling throughout the sequence of, of these football games, ref, outright refusing to run the ball on some days, to the defense their inability to get off the field on third and long, giving up way too many big big pass plays through the air and on the ground. Their inability, unless it's Trey Hendrickson, to get after the quarterback. Poor secondary play. Whole thing's just a mess. A mess. They have nobody to blame but themselves. I hear all the talk, well, it's a long The same dribble from Zach Taylor, ad infinite. Oh, it's a long season. Nobody's panicking. This, that, and the third. Well, look, well, Zach, look where it got you. Look where the fuck it got you. Eight and eight. Last place, destined for last place. Willis within the division, heading into the final weekend of the regular season with a sub-500 conference, in-conference record and no playoffs. Not no ASC championship game, no Super Bowl. No playoffs. You, like the, like the anemic Chargers and the pathetic waste of my damn time, 2-14 Carolina Panthers. After the game on Sunday, I'm going to pack your shit and, 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 and get the hell out. Your season ends on the same day as the 2 and 14 Panthers, the 4 and 12 Cardinals, the 7 and, the 7 and 9 the 4 and 12 uh Washington Commanders, the 4 and 12 New England Patriots, the 5 and 11 Los Angeles Chargers. Season ends the exact same day theirs does. 
because you were horrible against the teams within your own division. And you lost games. You had no business losing against the against the Texans at home. And you went into Nashville and you slept walked through the game and you got and you got your face punched in and kicked in sideways. And you have nobody to blame but yourself but yourself. Nobody to blame. Can't can't blame, you know, the league for screwing you over like with the coin toss fiasco last season. No, no, no. Put put the hold the mirror up to your face. Look at yourself. Jamar Chase talking shit. When he's coming off a separated soldier shoulder injury, Chiefs defense has played good all year. Uh, on top of the fact they're pissed off from the Raider game and they're going in undermanned with uh, with 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 without their uh, best interior defensive run stopping defensive lineman. On top of obviously no Joe Burrow, which has been the Chiefs kryptonite three out of the last four times we've played them. And, he, and they do nothing self-inflicted. Zach Taylor's decision-making and his stupid play-calling decisions and him being inconsistent, self-inflicted. Bad defense, giving up big plays, poor against the run, poor against the, against the, against, uh, the, deep, the deep passing game, self-inflicted. All of it self-inflicted. For ninety percent of it, self-inflicted, losing games, you end up getting embarrassing, humiliated by the Steelers twice, self-inflicted, getting in, humiliated on the road against Tennessee, self-inflicted, sleepwalking through a winnable game against Houston, self-inflicted, all everywhere you look, self-infliction, 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 shooting yourself in your in your foot, your kneecap, your thigh, your ass. Your, your your stomach, your arm, your neck, and now your head. And you're getting no playoffs. So, you know what? You deserve what you get. You deserve, I'm pissed off. I'm embarrassed. This team should be embarrassed. This team should be ashamed of themselves. This team should be humiliated. And they got a lot to think about. They got a nice, long, cold-ass winner to think about and ponder their fuck-ups from training camp all the way up to now. Long off-season, think long and hard about what they need to do differently so they can be in New Orleans for next season. And I don't mean go, you know, run it back the same way it was, you know, put it together with spit grip and a whole lot of duct tape have Joe Burrow come back and rely on his high-end talent because we've learned through you know back-to-back seasons that that doesn't always that that doesn't work. That his high-end talent, that his greatness, that him going on God mode only carries us to a certain point. You want to be a you want to build a, a a well-rounded football team around him, not win games simply because of him, but win games because you're a great football team and he's great as well. And again, eight and fourteen since he's been here, damn it! And and zero and five in the division, or zero and uh, yeah, zero and zero and five against the division this year. Damn it! Somebody's head's got to roll. Three and eight 
against the conference only five within division last place. Damn it, somebody needs to get fired. I'm not necessarily saying Zach Taylor, but he better not call a he better not be calling the offense for him next season. I don't want to see Brian Callahan at all next season. And I need to see Joe Brady, the new the new OC and calling the plays. I don't want Zach Taylor calling the plays. Strictly head coach. Head coach, he's not bad. Knows how to manage a play clock for the most part. Timeout mismanagement isn't really, you know, an issue with him. It's his play calling and and his timely decision making. He shouldn't be calling plays for this team next season. Get get see if you can get Joe Brady from Buffalo, who was Joe Burrow's right hand man at LSU. Have him call the offense. Have him be the new offensive coordinator. Fire Brian Callahan. Tell Zach Taylor forfeit play calling duties. Z- uh, Lou, go back to the drawing board with your defense. And I want an overhaul. I want killer dogs within the trenches on the offense and the defensive side of the football. Defensive side of the football especially. I want dogs. I want menaces in the trenches that know how to stop the run and make life a living hell for the quarterback. Not just have it be the Trey Hendrickson, Trey Hendrickson, Trey Hendrickson show and then let the chips fall with what they may with the other pass rushers. Because as, you, as you've seen, it's gotten us nowhere in the last two seasons. Three seasons, really. It's gotten us nowhere. Nowhere. And I want running the football to be a, a more appointing emphasis of attack. I want Chase Brown to, have to be flirting with a 1,000 rushing yards come next season. And I don't want Joe Burrow on a consistent basis throwing the football 35, 40, 45 times a game because that's going to result in him getting hurt and us losing games and us being a one-dimensional, bland-ass offense. Run the damn ball. They got a lot of things to address over this offseason. Self-inflicted. It was a boom or bust, Super Bowl or bust season for the Bengals, and they busted and boomed hard. And they didn't boom the way I would like. I mean, implosion, boom. Seasons of failure. And they have nobody to blame from but themselves. And it falls Zach Taylor all the way on down. Because they, they got some splaining to do this offseason. And a lot of heavy self-evaluating. Because this season for my Cincinnati Bengals was a complete and utter waste of time and an utter embarrassment. Another episode of the Amatelicatelia's podcast in the books. So like you heard, new to the program, please do not hesitate to subscribe, leave me a voicemail on all things NFL football and the college football playoff national championship game next Monday. And of course, week 18 coming up this weekend. Leave me a voicemail. You can email it to me. Uh, Shields Jai, S-H-I-L-D-S, Jai15 at gmail.com. Until Friday, be safe. Take care. Happy New Year.